Welcome to Franchise Detours, episode 21. You can find more episodes of this show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and other podcatchers, as well as crookedtable.com. And it's a sad day here for Franchise Detours, uh, mostly because we're saying goodbye to another mega series, And not, not for the fact that we're talking about Spider-Man 3, which I know many of you have thoughts on. And just to prepare you for the episode ahead, Brian Scuttle of Sonic Cinema Podcast and I also had thoughts, so many in fact, that this is, I think, I'd have to check to verify this, but I think the longest episode, uh, podcast episode that I've ever recorded or been a part of, I, I, I think that's probably, there might be a couple that are close, but I would say this is definitely, yeah, this is definitely, this is probably the the, the longest. Uh, I think we earned that runtime because I think this is a very, like, uh, deceptively rich film. I think people like to write off Spider-Man 3 as, oh, that goofy dance and uh, that terrible version of Venom, etc. And, you know, we'll address those things as well uh, during this episode. But I think there's a lot more going on here thematically than meets the eye. And it's it's why this episode is so significantly longer than the first two parts of this mega series. So, Strap in for that. If you need to break this up in a few pieces, I won't be offended. I won't even know, in fact. So uh, go for it. And uh, let's listen to a little bit of the trailer and then get into our conversation about Spider-Man 3. I'm going to ask MJ to marry me. A man has to put his wife before himself. Can you do that, Peter? Yeah, I think I can. We have some new information. This is your uncle's actual killer. We lost his trail two days ago. This man killed my uncle, and he's still out there. Everybody needs help sometimes, Peter. Even Spider-Man. Revenge is like a poison. It can take us over. Before you know it, can turn you into something ugly. The suit. Where'd this come from? The power. Feels good. You lose yourself to it. Welcome to Franchise Detours, where we believe no movie series travels in a straight line. On this episode, we are... 
winding down on our Spider-Man uh, mega series, the Sam Raimi trilogy only. So no Garfields or Hollands in this one, but I, I, this is really, I think the, the conversation, and I was just saying that to our, our guest just before this call that I think might be the most interesting because I think it's, it's certainly, you know, the most divisive of these three films, but also maybe the most interesting to talk about. I guess we'll find out how this episode goes. Uh, but I'd love to welcome to the show Brian Scuttle of Sonic Cinema Podcast. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing very well. Thank you very much for having me on. It was great to talk to you on uh, Close Watch when we talked about The Crow. It was great to have you on to talk about parodies. I cannot wait to have this discussion. Yeah, absolutely. So tell people who don't know about Sonic Cinema what you all do over there and, and introduce yourself. Where can they find you? So... It is, Sonic Cinema is a, a personal blog that I started in 2004. Uh, mainly it was at the time it was for uh, print reviews as well as audio commentaries, which I've actually, I actually, along with some friends, recorded some audio commentaries for the first two films in the Sam Raimi trilogy. And yes. uh, those are available on sonic-cinema.com as well as some original music, because I am also a composer and I've had interest in film music. And uh, so needless to say, film film soundtracks have always been a big thing for me. And I'm and I, I that's one of the things that we'll we'll talk about as we go along with the discussion here. But um, so that's basically how Sonic Cinema uh, started out. And over the years, um, I basically have continued and added a the Sonic Cinema podcast, which, like I said, Robert joined me on last year. We talked about parody films, the parody genre, and uh, I, I basically do a lot of deep dives there. I talk about classic films. I talk about the film festivals I cover and just just have various interviews and discussions on with a wide variety of guests. And uh, the primary place you can find all of that is www sonic-cinema.com Excellent. Well, we are here to talk about uh, 2007's Spider-Man 3, directed by Sam Raimi. Before we get into the film itself, Brian, tell, tell the listeners a little bit about your history with Spider-Man, and then we'll kind of transition into this particular franchise. Um, so I am not a... I'm traditionally not a comic book reader. I have watched I have read some comic books over the years as superhero movies have become more and more prevalent over the, in terms of uh, Hollywood. And, but I do not have a, you know, I don't really have a fondness for Spider-Man that goes back to the animated series and uh, the comic books. But um, when the 2002 Sam Raimi film came out, I, I really loved it, and it was a terrific film. It was one of the... I was a few years into writing at that time. At the time, it was just an email list that I would send to friends and family, but it that movie really... Uh, I, I really enjoyed that film. It was a lot of fun to talk about and to write about, and I continue to enjoy it. Like I said, we've got an audio commentary at Sonic Cinema that we did, and... um. You know, as Spider-Man 2 is very much Spider-Man 2. A lot of people, I'm one of the many people who absolutely love that film. And uh, 
you know, so when Spider-Man 3 came out, I remember that the hype around it was about as big as we'd ever seen. Because the first one was a massive hit, one of the, the highest grossing movie of 2002. 2004, it was, it won the Oscar for visual effects. It was much more acclaimed than the the first one. And so, needless to say, with Sam Raimi bringing out, bring this trilogy to a close, it was, the anticipation was enormous. And, um, we'll, and we'll, we'll get into what ended up being the, you know, how it ended up being viewed as part of the franchise as we go along. Yeah, no, I mean, you, you sort of, you sort of introed this, this film's uh, reputation pretty well here. I mean, this is, I think the first time that Sony is sort of really kind of pushing and throwing its weight around uh, Spider-Man two, as you said, was Oscar winning, huge blockbuster success, critically acclaimed and all of that. Uh, in a time where that wasn't common for superhero movies. Now, I think every MCU movie with maybe a couple exceptions is fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, whatever that means. Um, <laughs> but, but this was Sony sort of coming in and feeling emboldened by Spider-Man two and pushing venom on, on Sam Raimi. This was a, obviously there's legendary behind the scenes conflicts going on in this Raimi wanted Sandman, Sony wanted venom and so we got sort of this mashup of Venom and Sandman kind of splitting uh, lead villain duties, so to speak, here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, it sort of led to what is at best, you know, generally considered a step, a mild step down for the other two as far as critical and fan reception. And at worst, like there are people who absolutely hate this thing. Like there, there are people who loathe yeah. this film. And we'll get into why we both feel like that's a little unfair. And uh, I'm I'm kind of in between. Like, I don't think it's like, oh, that's, you know, it's almost as good as the, like, I think it's significantly a step down from the first two. But I also don't lump it in the pile with like, you know, Ghost Rider, Spirit of Vengeance, or I don't know, whatever other, <laughs> one of the, uh, one of oh, the God. other, the yeah. lower, the X-Men Origins, Wolverine, you know, it's not like, bottom scraping the bottom of the barrel of marvel films by any stretch of the imagination no i mean it is kind of the redhead stepchild when it comes to the sam raimi trilogy because of the fact that like you said it's not as widely claimed as the first two it's not as popular as the first two but yeah i mean like like you said the idea that this is near the bottom of the barrel of comic book movies much less marvel comic book movies is just comedically absurd and i mean i you know one of the things Mm -hmm. i've noticed being on twitter and being on what is known as film twitter is it feels like the reputation among younger audiences has is better for this film than it was for people who were in my relative age bracket right and I think that's one of the things. And so you see that as different audiences connect with this film, you, you start to see a shift as far as like how acclaimed the movie is versus, you know, how deri- derided, derided it was um, when it came out in 2007. It was, I think, at the time, one of the highest grossing, one of the most expensive films ever made, like it reportedly as high as 350. 
for this thing. And it's, I think what is interesting about it is that it, it doesn't feel to me as cohesive as the first two. And we've sort of already briefly mentioned why. And, and, and I, for me, it always felt like a movie sort of at odds with itself narratively, but like, but thematically sound from beginning to end, if that makes sense. Is that, is that sort of mm-hmm. similar to your read as well? Okay. Yeah. Uh, that, that's, that's very much been my, my take on it over overall, where um, even going back to 2007, uh, it was, it was a movie that, like you said, I mean, especially with the, with Sony basically pushing Sam, uh, Venom on Sam Raimi, uh, you, you see that the plot really is kind of up in the air and kind of, it, it's, it's kind of doing 20 different things at once and not necessarily all of them are successful. But at the same time, you do look at the film thematically. And I think that's where, you that's where these films especially the Raimi films have really succeeded even more so than the Garfield and Holland movies which is thematically these movies are always relatively sound and I think a big part of that is that they all basically get to this fundamental idea of with great power comes great responsibility yeah because we have in this film and and you know we can we can kind of cir- you know go around in circles on how we want to what we want to cover exactly as we go through this film but but the way i sort of my read of it this time is that the themes is the theme is redemption forgiveness etc i mean aunt may is is always shines through as the the beacon of this is what this movie is about audience <laughs> you know she always gets a <laughs> a a monologue about i believe there's a hero in all of us she's like you know you go yeah uh, he wouldn't want us living for a second with revenge in our hearts. You know, it'll it'll turn you into something ugly. And, you know, you have the first thing you have to do is forgive yourself. Like, that's the whole like she's she's the theme, the theme machine of these films. She's like, hey, in case you didn't. Yeah. <laughs> you didn't get what this is supposed to be about. Aunt May is going to come out and explain it for you. Um, so you have these four men in very like varying states of of inner darkness and in, in search of some form of redemption. So. One thing, one way that I thought that might make sense to sort of approach this is kind of going through each of their stories, sort of, and and just you know not maybe mm-hmm. knocking out the 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 other three first and then circling back to Peter might make sense because otherwise it just or or vice versa. Right. Do you have a particular way you want to try and and tackle this? Because it's kind of of these three films, I feel like sort of a a beast to get your hands around uh, in in a conversation. Is it which way do you want to go with this one? Uh, we can we can we can end with Peter and start okay. with the uh, start with the other characters. I don't have a problem with that. Okay, cool, cool. Well. Clearly the big, the big, the way that the second one ends, it's the big cliffhanger, you know, with, uh, MJ and Peter are together. Harry discovered the truth about his father. And, uh, when this opens, it's very much sort of, he's like the looming, you know, sort of specter in the, in the balcony and, uh, while Mary Jane is performing on stage. And, uh, how, what, how do you feel about the way this film builds on first the promise of, that Spider-Man two sets up with that epic reveal of, you know, him pulling off the mask and all of that. How do you feel about the, how this film picks up the baton from Spider-Man two vis-a-vis the, the Harry Osborne storyline, I guess, most specifically. 
I, I think for the most part, it's relatively successful. I mean, I do feel like, you know, the, the, the one big revealing moment is the idea of, um, Harry not, Harry assuming that Peter Parker killed his father or Spider-Man killed his father as opposed to realizing the truth of how his father died, which is conveniently revealed at the beginning of Act 3 by Bern- Bernard, the uh, longtime butler of the Osbournes. Um, I, I feel like that part is probably... I think I feel like that reveals probably the most telegraphed as far as like, oh, you've got to get him into the final fight, and here's what's going to get him there. We're going to keep this valuable piece of information from you for as long as possible. And yeah. I I just almost have a hard time believing that that would be possible. And I mean, part of, I think part of the reason that that part is kind of suspect as far as how successful it is, is because of the fact that we don't really get an idea of how much time has passed between two and three. Mm. You know, I mean, in one between one and two, you kind of get a better idea of how much time has passed. Between two and three, it could be a matter of months, it could be a year. How long have Peter and Harry been estranged from one another for because of what was revealed at the end of two? And how long have Peter and Mary Jane ultimately been together? And I think that's one of the things that doesn't I think that's the one thing that kind of if that had been more established. I, I think there are some things about this that could have been uh, that aspect of the uh, story that could have been done a bit, that could have been a bit stronger. But at the same time, I think overall it's successful. I, I like what James Franco does with the character. I mean, even if some of the scenes where he's supposed to have amnesia and forget everything are, you know, they're a little bit hammy, but at the same time, I, I think that's kind of Sam Raimi in general, kind of the aesthetic that he's going for as in terms of the performances he's getting from these actors over these films. Yeah. I, it's, I, I have basically, uh, and I have a big issue with each of these three non Peter, uh, arcs. And, and the first one here is the, the amnesia plot line feels like such a, mm-hmm. uh, like such a cop out to me. Like that was, that's my first big obstacle. Maybe as, as a person who obviously enjoys this film more than me, Brian, maybe you can walk me through some of these things and help me, help me forgive myself and forgive Spider-Man three for this. But it, the amnesia plot line feels like, it feels like a, a narrative cheat in a way, but I mm-hmm. know what he's trying. Obviously we're see we're, we, we, <sighs> Harry dies in the end. <laughs> Spoilers for this 15 year old yeah. movie. Um, it's <laughs> you need to build to that place. It's into that, that shot at the end, which I love that shot of the three of them sort of like looking off into the, over the city. Beautiful shot. It's, mm-hmm. And as, as I've said in other conversations for this mega series, this has always been a, a trilogy of about these three friends and their dynamic and yeah. their relationships with each other. And, and I think that it's, it's very love. It's lovely that it ends on, you know, essentially on a shot of the three of them. And then there's one more scene with Peter and MJ basically. Um, mm-hmm. So I love that, but you have to get us to a place. You have to reverse engineer that ending. Like, how do we do that in a way that people care about Harry 
after the way that two left him, you know, envisioning the, the ghost of his father and, you know, on a quest for vengeance, you know? And so, so it, it leaves them in a tight spot with how to do that, you know? And they, I, there's, I had the idea that they could have had him kind of pretending that, you know, he was, he was forgiving Peter. And then, you know, we could see a lighter side of him because also the other thing is when we saw Harry in the other two movies, Harry was never as chill as Harry is in this movie. Harry's painting. He's very at peace with himself. (laughs) Like this is what Harry would be like without the, the, the shadow of his father kind of looming over him this entire trilogy, you know? No, and I, I I completely agree with that. I mean, the look, the am, the amnesia thing is basically a trope that is it's it's intent is basically a soap opera. That's that's the thing Absolutely. that's interesting about all three of these movies. There's a very soap opera aspect to the way these movies play out, the way these tropes play out, the way these relationships play out in kind of all three of these movies. Um you know, as far as the amnesia thing here, you know, it's a it's, love it's triangle basic, too. I, I, yeah. And I mean, that's, and that's something that is carried over from the first one. And then you have a little bit more, a little bit of in the second one, but I mean the, the love triangle between Harry, uh, Peter and MJ is kind of dissipated and it's between, uh, and it's Peter, MJ and, uh, Jonah, Jameson's uh, son and then you basically bring it back to those three because right. like you said a lot of this is as much about those three as it is anything yeah I mean the the amnesia thing it's it's very much a soap opera aspect of it but I mean I, I think if and yeah it's it's stretches credibility because it stretches crudo- credibility for this narrative to a certain extent because if you because the fact of the matter is you basically have to get you're trying to get Harry to a point where he will fight with Peter fight in on Peter's side at the end, but mm-hmm. not have him as a constant threat throughout the movie. I mean, that's basically what that trope does. That's basically what the amnesia does in this case. And it. You know, it it's kind of silly, but at the same time, I one of the reasons I think is it's moderately successful. I'm not saying it's a good piece of writing, but I think one of the reasons it's kind of moderately successful was because of the fact that it plays because of the fact that Harry is not aware of what's going on. He he doesn't necessarily remember the immediate of what's going on with peter and mj it allows him to be a a it it allows him to be somebody in the middle of that relationship that's further straining peter and mj beyond anything else it's it basically works as service at the service of continuing to fracture the relationship that peter and mj have at the beginning of the movie Mm mm-hmm yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, you know, he, he is, he is attentive to MJ. We'll get into MJ and Peter's relationship drama in this movie, which, which mm-hmm. I am mostly here for. And I, I'm, I'm, you know, I, 
I've said in the other episodes, I'm, I really, I, I love the chemistry that Tobey Maguire and Kirsten Dunst have in these movies. And I'm fully on board yeah. for, for that love story as it plays out. Uh, and I think Harry is an interesting wrinkle here because they have a past MJ and, and Harry because, uh, because he is, he's there for her. Like he says in that scene in the diner, um, because we, we, he is unburdened by all the comic booky stuff going on in this movie. And he's able to just be a regular guy dancing to the twist, making eggs with her, uh, which, which is, (laughs) which is, which is a cute scene. And, uh, and that's what she needs. And he, and Harry or, or Peter is not, is not uh, is not putting her first, as he says in this film later on. So I think mm-hmm. my I love where the Harry thing it sticks the landing, and I like the way it opens. It's some of the middle stuff that's that just rubs me rubs me the wrong way because, like you said, it feels like just a little too neat, a little too convenient. Like oh, he doesn't remember. Yeah, and 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 you can get that that like that Peter. That's sort of what he's thinking when that happens. He's like oh well that worked out for me. Everything's working out for me until it doesn't. Yeah. Um, and we get those two fights with Peter and, and, uh, and Harry, which I think are, are, are pretty, are pretty fun, like in dynamic set pieces, uh, very different energies. Mm-hmm. Uh, you get the very, you know, CG heavy flying around on the glider, swinging in between buildings, getting, trying to grab, uh, Aunt May's ring sort of fight. And then you get this like br- fist fight brawl in the, in the Osborne mansion that feels much more akin to, the final battle with uh, Spider-Man and, and Norman Osborn at the end of the first film. Yeah. Uh, what, what do you think about those, those fights, the way they reflect the, uh, the story and the, the conflict between these two men? And uh, in a lot of ways, the three antagonists are all sort of dark reflections of Peter, what he could be, where, you know, where his life could go. I think Eddie Brock most directly, but, uh, but yes. So the Harry Peter fights, what are your, your thoughts on, on, uh, on how those go and emo Peter, I guess we'll start talking about in a little bit here. (laughs) Well, I mean, I definitely agree with you on the, uh, I definitely agree with you on your assessment of the two fights. I, I think the, uh, the first one is really well, it's really well done. It's a strong, early set piece to get you into the action of what we're going to see because by this time we haven't seen Sandman come into play. We haven't seen Venom come into play or the symbiote rather come into play. And uh, so the main villain that we see is Harry Osborn and he's the easiest one to introduce because of what happened at the end of Spider-Man 2 and I, I think the idea that it centers on him getting back the ring they just got from Aunt May to give to MJ. I think that is a great way to get the ebbs and flows of this set piece together. And yeah, it's very CG, but the fact is it still is, it's still a very effective scene because of the fact that it really plays to the emotional connections that these two characters have and we have with these characters. But no, I was going to say uh, about the fight, we finally get the, um, the, the, the payoff to what I was waiting for since the end of the second one, which is when he finds out the truth, obviously Norman's dying words were don't tell Harry. 
And there's a kind of a running thing in these movies that Harry's constantly not getting all the information. And yeah. when this movie starts and he sees him on the street, I'm like, I know he, he said, don't tell Harry, but do tell Harry. Like, this is important. Mm-hmm. And you finally get it on that in that first fight with them where he's like, no, oh, maybe your father, you know, I didn't kill your father. He tried to kill me. He killed him. It's like, we finally get that bomb dropped. Uh, he's, he's, I guess, mildly betraying Norman's trust and dying wishes because to save his ass, basically. And I, and I think that it's, you know, it's as a viewer, that's one of those things that you're screaming at the TV, like, just tell him what happened for God's sake. Like this is, you know, so we finally, we get that in the middle and we're, as you were saying, we've followed this friendship from the beginning of the first movie them in the mm-hmm. uh, in the science lab seeing the spiders talking about MJ him saving him from flash like all that stuff from flash and so to see them now strike blows here first in in a more grandiose fashion and then and then later on like really kind of much more brutal to the point that Peter Parker the friendly neighborhood spider-man throws a bomb at his best friend's face uh like yeah. this movie goes dark places that i i I wonder, and this is something I'll get to probably again later, I wonder if that's part of the reason that this movie is more, uh, you know, is more divisive or, or controversial amongst fans because it does take this seemingly bright and, and you know, uh, quippy and idealistic character on a, on a dark path. And I think that makes a lot of people uncomfortable and i think that's part of why this movie rubs people the wrong way you know batman can be adam west he could be pattinson but spider-man is kind of spider-man and but in this one when he gets the dark suit he doesn't you know mj even says at some point who are you like we're the audience watching like Mm -hmm. yeah this is like it's it you know some of the stuff some of the design choices with the hair and the dancing we'll get into uh uh, whether that yeah. works or not, but just from a, a narrative standpoint, like this, it, this is, it, it, it takes Spider-Man to some dark places that I think maybe people weren't, weren't ready for. Yeah. And I, I think you probably are on to something as to why audiences kind of recoiled with the third one. Um, because of the fact that it does, I mean, you, you based on the trailers, you do see him taking the black suit Spider-Man, but you also, kind of get the impression oh okay so venom's gonna be come into play and that's gonna be one of the main villains and stuff like that and you're gonna see a lot of fine there but yeah what you don't necessarily expect is peter having this drastic change and i think that's and we'll, we'll get into it more when we talk about flint marco and sandman i think that's where the idea of keeping Uncle Ben as a such a fundamental part of this narrative is so important because of the fact that it gives him an emotional reason to start going down that dark path when the symbiote latches on to him. And, uh, you know, it's so we're, we'll talk about the second fight between uh, Harry and um, Peter and one of the things that I love about that, and I, I do want to point out, I absolutely love the score that Christopher Young does for this movie. It is criminal yeah. that we never got an actual, like, an actual release of proper release of this soundtrack. No, it's not 
the same thing I, that Danny Elfman does. Brian, but it is such a great score. I 100% agree. I have been <laughs> checking periodically on Amazon and different websites over the last 15 years looking for that because I have the yeah. first two scores and the for, for Spider-Man 3 obviously yes I noticed uh, you know the Christopher Young took over I think uh, Danny Elfman at some point had a falling out with Sam Raimi over whatever I think they've since yeah. patched it up. Yeah. But uh yes. just like you know that the that theme and the music that Danny Elfman came up with for those first two is so iconic and Christopher Young I think does deserve a lot of props for the uh, the symbiote theme for the birth of Sandman sequence specifically mm-hmm. for cuz he does such beautiful work here and I I've been wanting I've been looking I don't even buy CDs anymore really and I'm still looking like if they came out with it tomorrow I would pre-order it uh, because I've just been going yeah. by YouTube playlists of people uploading the music for the last 15 years. Right. I listened to it earlier today to kind of get in the mindset <laughs> for this episode. So it's like, yeah, I, I agree with you. Back to your point. But I just, I'm so glad you brought that up. No, that's fine. Um, it, and I will say, so a friend of mine and I, the first year I went to Dragon Con 2009, we found this uh, vendor in the uh, vendor room where they were they were selling like these they they were basically you know h dvd or cdr versions of soundtracks and uh owl print soundtracks and stuff and one of the ones that we did happen to find there was christopher young's for spider-man 3 it's not a great copy so i was thankful it you know it it has some graphicals and stuff like that it's not great it's not a great copy but it's i would love i i'm like i'm with you i would absolutely love to um own like a proper release of this soundtrack because it is absolutely fantastic you're right that danny elfman and sam raimi they did have a falling out over to uh christopher young did write some music for two as well as john debney i think did a couple of cues as well for it um they have since patched it up because elfman did oz the great and wonderful and um he's doing doctor strange multiverse of madness for Raimi, so that's mm-hmm. very exciting um but the reason i brought this out the score here is i love how almost comedic the score is in that fight between harry and peter after black black suits but he because he starts to really lean into the black suit Spider-Man. I I love the way that it moves. It just really feels it feels almost darkly comic as opposed mm-hmm. to as opposed to something serious like we heard earlier. And I think part of that has a lot to do with the way that Raimi sort of does the heel turn that Raimi and Maguire we have to give credit to McGuire here or blame, however you want to look at to the heel turn that Peter Parker takes in this movie. And you, you see this like sort of winking sort of sarcasm to the scene because of the fact that like Peter, Peter knows he can probably take Harry at this point, or he feels like he can because of the confidence he's getting from the black right. suit or the arrogance, I should say. He's getting from the black suit Spider-Man, but, and the way that young scores that is very, 
in sync with a lot of what we see in here in the sequences that we're going to get into later when we talk about Peter as black suit Spider-Man. Yeah. I, the, the, the Harry storyline, I, I find always really interesting because of, of how that friendship dynamic shifts over these three films. And there's a lot of questions, I think, even with his own mental state, like, do you, ha- do you think that the, the goblin formula, do you think it affects Harry the same way it affected Norman? Because it doesn't seem like he's any more or less insane because of the formula. Like I always wonder, I always assume that maybe he's been uh, perfecting it, you know, in his father's absence or working in that lab because he, he seems like he's obviously his, he's gotten strength and abilities, agility, et cetera, Mm -hmm. from that, from the formula, but he doesn't seem like he doesn't have, he's not hearing voices other than his father's, which he was hearing before he took the goblin formula, which is a whole other question of whether that's, do, do you think that's supposed to be legit in the story, Norman's ghost, or is that Harry's hallucination? Because there is the one moment where he says, we attack his heart, which is something from the first film that Harry wasn't yeah. present for. So it's not like Harry would imagine his father saying that now. What, what are your, where do you, how supernatural do you think that aspect of the story really goes? I, I think that's an excellent point because of an, an excellent question because of the fact that it's like, no, you really don't get the sense that Harry's psyche is being negatively affected by the serum the same way Norman's was. And that's right. that's something that doesn't necessarily, I think to a certain extent, that's something that doesn't necessarily resonate with people the first time. But it is interesting to look at in that perspective. And I I think, you know, I, I think the fact is it's, you know, Haunted by Ghosts is a very, you know, it's, it's something that makes a lot of sense in a super comic book world in a supernatural world. And I think to a certain extent that sort of, excuse me, I think to a certain extent that sort of, uh, the horror infused Sam Raimi coming into play. Um, sure. and here I don't know that it's necessarily as broken of a psyche, a psyche from Harry's perspective, because Harry Harry's driven by rage from the get-go in this. From the time that he stumbles across his father's um, workshop at the end of two to when we see him in three, he's already more... He, he's already fueled by rage. I mean, even going back to the end of the first one, he's fueled by rage over Spider-Man killing his father supposedly, even though we know that technically was not true. Um, so, I mean, he's, this is building off of him for three movies, essentially, or two movies, essentially. And so I think to a certain extent, Harry is stronger psychologically speaking. And the, addition of the component that the realization that is the people person he hates the most in Spider-Man is in fact his best friend is just an extra trigger for him. And with Norman, I think everything we see in Norman from the first one is very immediate because of 
fact that he's essentially having his livelihood taken from him. Right. So I think to a certain extent, the psychological break is harder for Norman because Harry's been building up to this over the course of the trilogy. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's absolutely right. I think if, if he had some kind of a psychotic break, it's not because of the, the, uh, the goblin formula. It's because of the pressure of his father. It's because of, like we said, that's, that's the moment where he sort of, uh, when he pulls that mask off of Peter at the end of two is when he snaps and when he is his first hears his father's voice and he appears to him and all that other stuff. So I think Harry yeah. is, Harry is sort of a villain, but also kind of a sympathetic character in a way, because we understand what he's gone through through the course of these movies. Every time he tries to live up to his father or, you know, feels like he has a, you know, a, a, a solid foot to stand on, it's like, oh, Peter, he's my best friend. He, I can count on him. Oh, no, he's Spider-Man. He killed my father. Never mind. I'm completely alone again. I might as well just devote. This is all I have. He says that even after, um, before the, the mask reveal at the end of two, he says it after yeah. the Doc Ock thing. He's like, oh, you know, I have nothing left. All I have is Spider-Man. He's, you know, he humiliated me by yeah. touching me, that whole thing. So it's, um, he's, he's very much in a state of de- desperation. And I think that's another commonality between the four, kind of uh, the four male characters that really drive this, this story. They're all in, in, des- in, in a form of desperation, particularly the, th- the three villains. Harry feels like this is all, all he has left is this vengeance, avenging his father, basically a pleasing his father from beyond the grave. Uh, you know, Eddie Brock f- feels like he's losing everything and he has to go against Spider-Man. And then Sandman just wants to, uh, you know, he just wants to get money to help his daughter. And, uh, who, who, you know, who's dealing with a, a, I guess, terminal illness. It's unclear exactly what she's dealing with, but yeah, yeah, but, um, but yeah, so with the Harry thing, uh, the, I have issues with the amnesia part of it. I like where, where it starts and I like where it ends. So ultimately it's just kind of an act two issue for me. And as you sort of already mentioned, the Bernard ex machina <laughs> that happens towards the end, uh, <laughs> that always annoyed me too. Um, I don't know. Have you ever seen the the editor's cut of this film? It's a couple a couple minutes less, and they actually excise that scene so that it's more Harry is actually more motivated by the friendships that he had with Peter and MJ. I think he looks over at a picture of them or something instead of Bernard coming in and telling them, "Oh, actually, this is what you needs to happen. Go, 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 finish this movie with your friends." You know? Have you seen I, the editor's I've cut? I've not actually. Okay. I've not actually seen that. And that's that's interesting, and I. I guess I can see that working to a certain, I guess I can see that working to a certain extent more because of the fact that it wouldn't be, A, it mm-hmm. wouldn't be as hokey. It wouldn't be as corny. Um, and like you said, it would right. be, it would imply the idea that Harry is more driven by being true to his friendships than he is by this sudden realization that he's been wrong the entire time. Um, you know, I mean, you you summed up this movie very well at, at the beginning where it's like plot wise, it's very much a mess. And but thematically, it's very tight. And I, I think, you know, the the movie, each of the Raimi movies have a tragic villain. You know, you have Norman Osborn, 
in the first one. You have Doc Ock in the second one. And Harry is really that in the third one. Now, as you said, the, mm. the other villains have different aspects of them that are tragic or at least unfortunate in their own ways. But I, I think if you're, if you're going by what the ultimately who the main villain whose arc we're supposed to really empathize with here to a certain extent, it is Harry Osborn. And so I guess I, in that, if you're looking at it through that perspective, I understand where the amnesia, amnesia part plays a little bit more, but at the same time, like you said, it's, 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 it's something that it, it really kind of strains, uh, believability. It's, it's a convenient plot device to basically sideline Harry for a bit while Peter deals with everything else he's going on. He's got going on. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Which, which is a lot, which is a lot. And you know, I, yeah, I like I like Harry's sacrifice. I like that he makes the choice to sacrifice him, himself mm. for Peter. Yeah. I, I love the, the darkly poetic uh note that he also, like his father, is killed with his own glider. Um I uh I I, yeah. I don't love the way that his death is super, super telegraphed early in the movie where he's like, Oh, my best friends, I'd give my life for them. And like watching this in theaters yeah. the first time I was like, <laughs> Oh, okay, well, we know how that story is going to end. I think, I think if you dial that back like 10% in the Bernard, uh, the Bernard scene is, is the perfect example of this. You dial it back like 10 to 20% of that storyline. I think it would have been way more effective. It's like they're, they're trying so hard to make sure that you uh, get his, the full extent of his arc. And I think it, it's, it comes on a little too strong, a little too ham handed, even for a Spider-Man movie. So I would, I, I, but I yeah. ultimately I do like where it ends and I do love that it, it brings us the focus back to the, to the main trio. Uh, is there anything about mm-hmm. Harry you wanted to say before we move into uh, our buddy Flint Marco? I, uh, not, not really. I mean, I will, uh, second your opinion on, uh, the ending being very effective and the fact that it ends with them, uh, the three of them together is extremely effective. And, uh, I, no, I mean you're you're right about all of that as far as how it telegraphs the there's so much just needless exposition and needless foreshadowing in this movie that's absolutely comedically yeah. absurd. Um I mean it's something that, you know, to a certain extent you kind of wonder it's like how much of that is the studio forcing that on Raimi, how much of it is Raimi. I, you know, I feel like it's more the, to a certain extent, I could see it being more the studio saying, oh, you got to make sure that, you know, you're, if you're getting to this point, you got to make sure. But I can also see it being Raimi. I mean, look, Sam Raimi and Ivan Raimi were two of the writers on this, um, along with Alvin Sargent, who had written the, who had written the, uh, second film. And, you know, look, I mean, nobody's, Sam Raimi is very clearly a much better director than he is a writer. And, uh, mm-hmm. I, yeah. so I, I think that that deficiency as a writer does kind of come through on this movie. Um, you know, maybe if Sergeant had taken a little bit more time to polish it, been able to take a little bit more time to polish it may and streamline it. Maybe it wouldn't have been as ham handed as it was in the final product. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think you and I are in agreement that the, the Peter MJ Harry stuff is the heart of this trilogy and the, in, in probably the stronger, uh, this, maybe the strongest aspects of this film. If in that case, before we go move into Sandman, if, you know, this movie would have had chosen Sandman or Venom and been able to, to be, you know, to not be quite so overstuffed, how let Harry have the focus more as the, as the primary villain. And then one of the other two as sort of the secondary, which one do you think would have been more effective and which one feels shoehorned in? I think the answer feels obvious, but I'm, I'm curious what your take is. So if you're, if you're going with one or the other of the main villains, I mean, it really kind of depends on what thematically, you know, you the place you want to get to with Peter thematically. I think if you're basing, if you're boiling it down solely to the, if you're boiling it down solely to the Peter MJ Harry stuff, it's it's not it's a controversial opinion. I um. I almost want to say Venom. I almost want to say the mm. symbiote and Venom. And I mean, you know, and we'll, we'll, we'll talk about, you know, and I'll go into, and we'll certainly go into why later. But I, I, I think if, if I have to choose, I would choose that one. But it's a tough call. It really is a tough call. Yeah. I think it's like, it's like you said, they both, uh, they they both play important roles as as you know sort of dramatic foils to Peter Sandman because of the connection with Uncle Ben Venom because he's literally a photographer for the Daily Bugle <laughs> very much kind of a profession you know e- easily just the he's kind of the dark Peter before Peter goes dark basically right um, right so I, I, let's let's move into Sandman here obviously we had Thomas Hayden Church who at this point when he was cast was a re- recent Oscar nominee for Sideways. Smart casting, I think, across the, bro- across the board. I-, I think he brings a lot of presence to this role. I think he's well cast. I think he's got the physicality. I do, and this is a symptom of the Venom and Sandman and Harry and every other subplot. Uh, I do feel like he is kind of severely underwritten in this film. I feel like Hayden Church does what he can with the material he has. But, I, you know, he's he's a a cool villain visually. And I, and I love, you know, obviously he's, he's got that motivation of his daughter. What are your, what are your thoughts on Sandman's character? And then we'll get to, uh, the, the big sticking point for a lot of fans, including myself, which is the, the light retconning or not so light retconning of uncle Ben's death and who his killer exactly is. Mm-hmm. Um, first of all, it's funny because you could not have told me when I was watching wings in the nineties that Lowell could possibly be not only an Oscar-nominated actor, but also a main villain in a superhero movie. I never will believe that, uh, watching him on Wings. That being said, you're, you're right. I think he does do a very good job with what he's written, and I do agree that it is a very underwritten part. Um, I think the... I, I think that um, making him the most easily sympathetic villain, I mean, even even more so than Harry, really, because even though we, we have the history with Harry throughout the two first two films, 
it's hard to really have a whole lot of sympathy for Harry throughout some of this film. And I think with with Flint making him because he he's not necessarily he he's a he's a villain of circumstance. If you really want to be honest, he's not a villain because he wants to destroy mm. New York. He wants to take over the world and all of that stuff. He's a villain because he just happened to do the wrong thing at the wrong time. And that's and he's he's somebody who is struggled in his life who can't keep his marriage together can't keep his relationship with his daughter together but he wants to and i think it's it's one of those things where you get and you mentioned when we were talking about the score you mentioned the scene where the the rising of sandman and when that that music by Christopher Young is just so absolutely beautiful. The music he writes for Sandman in general is beautiful. Um, it's 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 really a lovely it's a lovely little arc, and it is like you said, like you point to. This is an idea of redemption for him, where it's like he made these mistakes, but he's trying to make them right. You know is he making them right in the right way? That's up to debate. But the fact that he's trying to, the fact that he's trying to do what he can to help people to find peace or to find better health. It's he's, he's the most selfless in a way is the most most selfless of the villains. And I think that's a really interesting choice on Raimi's part to uh, go that direction with this villain. I give the movie props for not having a third consecutive villain where it's a scientist experimenting on themselves in order to kind of propel their yeah. research forward. <laughs> so I, you know, I think that if they had done the lizard here, you know, that would have, I mean, it would have been of a piece if you want that to be sort of your ongoing motif with the villains, but it's also like, that would have been the exact same thing. And that's what the, the reboot, the amazing Spider-Man does is basically the same thing, but the Kirk Connors instead of Norman Osborn. Um, but the fact that he is, as you said, the selfless, he's not even robbing banks or, or armored trucks or, or what have you, because he's like, Oh, I have to finish my, you know, my, my, my project, I have to complete my research, all the years I put into it or whatever. He's just like, I just want money so I can give it to my wife to take care of get, my daughter can get treatment for her, for her illness, you know? And I, and that is, yeah, that is in a way an admirable, uh, an admirable goal. And so it's, it, you know, the fact that his origin, that's another thing that I was always like, that's a little random that he falls into that, that machine (laughs) and gets turned into Sandman. But then upon this viewing, we're we're talking so much about theme and, and character and stuff in this, upon this viewing, I was like, but on the other hand, he literally just said like five minutes ago, I'm not a bad person. I've just had bad luck. And there he goes falling into that like oscillator machine or whatever it is. So of course, you know, of course, naturally this is the bad luck he ends up with. Uh, so he does what he can to use it to his advantage. You get in that birth of Sandman sequence, you get that, that really pain to look in his eyes when he can't, when he kind of struggles to pick up the locket 
immediately, yeah. which I think says yeah. so much about the character right out the gate. Like this mm-hmm. is his resolve. This is what's driving him literally reaching for his daughter in that moment. And I think that's, you know, it seems like that, that, that Hayden church really, really sells it. And you makes you wish that you had had more time with Sandman to really kind of flesh him out as a character mm-hmm. and give, give that, you know, talented actor more material to work with. Yeah. Well, and the thing is, it's like, that's what, that's why having a character, having a character actor like Thomas Hayden church and that role matters so much because of the fact that he's, he's genuinely an everyman. You completely buy him as an everyman. Yeah. I mean, you could go different if you wanted to go with more strength. I mean, maybe not the time, but like, um, you know, say like The Rock or David Bautista or somebody like that. I mean, you could cert if, you know, they would bring the physical presence even more so. But at the time, but you wouldn't necessarily believe them as an everyman. And I think that's why having an actor like Thomas in church is so important. And, you know, I mean, we, we can, you know, we talked about the amnesia thing being kind of a, you know, a more of a circumstantial plot aspect to it, just to kind of sideline Harry a little bit from, but, you know, think about, like you said, like just happening on the oscillating, the experiment and, you know, even more so the scientists who are clearly having their eyes on this, they they just brush it off as, oh, it's a bird. And it's like they they don't have it's probably a bird. He'll fly away. <laughs> they don't have they don't have cameras recording to see the a human being fell in here. I mean, that it it's it's just it's it's absolute lunacy and but i mean you know that's that's kind of the comic book aspect of this movie too i mean there's you know because right look as much as people some people want to admit it comic book movies by and large are not high art they're not going to be right. great narrative achievements that doesn't mean they don't have anything they can't have anything to say and this one has a lot to say i think but you're going to get these plot devices and these plot strings that even if you just pull just a little bit it could fall apart um in terms of logic but that's where you kind of just have to leave your logic at the door to a certain extent with a movie like this in order to just go along with it. That's why I think Sam Raimi is such a, a genius fit for comic book films or and specifically this character, because he's, he's able to emotionally ground you in Peter's story and his situation and how he feels, you know, his struggle specifically, particularly in the second film. But he also, he also comes from the, an evil dead background. So he understands camp. He understands how to lean into the genre aspects. He understands that ultimately, yes, this is a story about people and relationships and emotions and, and growth and redemption and blah, blah, blah. But they're also, they're also movies about a dude who climbs on walls and shoots webs out of his arms, which sounds ridiculous (laughs) on paper. And he knows how to kind of, fit those two tones without making it seem like he's making fun of it. And I, and I think, yeah, it, to, to your point, the, the, the thing with, um, with Marco in the, in the, in the machine, I don't know if you've ever seen the, how it should have ended videos on YouTube. 
Uh, they have one they did for Spider-Man 3 like a decade ago or something. And it was one of the first ones I saw. And they really have fun uh, poking holes at things exactly like that. There's a scene exactly <laughs> like that where they're like, oh, it's probably just a bird. And then one of the scientists stands up and like, here's an idea. How about you go down and make sure that it's just a bird and not a person? And they found that they find <laughs> Flint Marco in there and they lock him away. And he's he's in a truck being pulled down. Be like, oh, but my daughter, she's sick. And like, it's it's right. so it's so funny. <laughs> I would so I would definitely recommend yeah. people check that out if they haven't seen it, uh, because it, it points out a lot of the things that we're like, we like this movie, but also this part's a little weird. Um, yeah, I, I, yeah. I, I, a hundred percent agree. Tonally it's comic, but, and this is why, you know, I loved the Batman to get off topic for a minute. Uh, but I completely understand someone that watches that and like, oh, this movie's got its head up its ass is <laughs> completely in love with itself. Because yeah. if you go to see Batman and you're like, it's a guy in a bat costume, I'm not going to take it like it's, you know, gospel. Like, you know, I, I, that's fair. Yeah. I understand. I get it. Like I'm, I'm, uh, I, you know, I grew up with that character. So when he's at the beginning saying, Oh, you know, it's not just a warning. It's a, uh, it's not just a call. It's a warning. I'm like, yeah, I'm right. into it, but it doesn't, you know, your mileage may, yeah. may vary. And I, and I think, uh, there are movies that go all in on its comic bookiness and there are movies that sort of have a little more fun with it. And I think Raimi knows that Spider-Man's the kind of character that can, that can kind of shift back and forth between, like you were saying that the dark comedy of, of like, uh, Peter, like Saturday night fevering his way down the street, uh, or, yeah. or fighting with Harry and, and kind of calling him Goblin Jr. and things like that, but then also have a, a very emotional scene between him and MJ, you know, and I, and I think that they can fit in the same, uh, in the same universe when Sam Raimi's at the helm. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And I mean, it's one of those things where it makes you, it makes you appreciative of a filmmaker like Sam Raimi, whom I adore and is a fantastic filmmaker. You mentioned the evil dead movies, you know, dark man is a great example. Yep. It dragged me to hell. And I mean, even Oz, the great, wonderful. I mean, there are moments in that, that are, you know, he's not taking this seriously the same way that a lot of fans of comic books are taking this seriously. You know, he, he's reverential to, he, he's reverential to the idea that this that comic books are art, but he also knows that one of the things that makes a movie special and comic book special is that you have different authors who can bring their own sensibilities into it. And that's why that's one of the things I think continues to make the Raimi trilogy stand out as special for all of its ups and downs is because of the fact that he understands it's my chance to bring something unique to this. I mean, you know, yeah, I mean, I completely understand that idea of, Oh yeah. The Batman does kind of have its head up its ass. You know what? You could kind of say the same thing about the Nolan movie. Yeah. You yeah, absolutely. hundred percent. You, you can definitely say that about the Zack Snyder movies. You know, and I apologize yeah. for all the hate tweets you're going to get when <laughs> people hear that. But, um, you know, the fact of the matter is, it's like ultimately he understands that there's a level of sincerity. There's a sincerity to Sam Raimi. You know, he is sincerely overjoyed with the art of filmmaking. 
and he understands the idea of narrative. I mean, it's no, you know, he, he is early on. Some of his best friends were the Cone brothers. You think that's a coincidence? They have very similar, similar sensibilities in how they approach films, how they approach genre and how they approach using comedy in films. That is not a coincidence that those two those two sets of filmmakers hit it off in the early days. And it's it's one of those things where it's like he you bring your own voice to it and that's that's what makes it special. And that's what separates the Raimi movies from uh, you know, the Mark Webb and John Watts movies is that it feels like a Sam yeah. Raimi movie first and foremost. I mean, it's obviously mm-hmm. it's a Marvel movie. It's a Spider-Man movie, et cetera, but it, you, it feels, it feels like it's made by the guy that made the evil dead movies and drag me to hell and dark man. And like yeah. you said, all those great movies from the nineties and, and beyond. Uh, but yeah, I a hundred percent agree. Sam Raimi, big fan over here. Obviously this is, we've, we've only done, mm-hmm. this is, I think the third or fourth mega series on this podcast. Uh, we've already done, we've already, we did the child's play movies. Then we did evil dead. Then we did Mad Max. Now we're doing Spider-Man. So we're already knocking out the two Raimi franchises, like right off the bat. Um, so I, I totally agree with you there. Uh, back to Sandman. So how do, do you feel, you know, people by now will have already heard my conversation with the lady one and how, you know, I think I mentioned on that episode about how the third one sort of changes the origin of Spider-Man or the circumstances by which uncle Ben, uh, uncle Ben ended up shot and ended up, you know, the fact that Peter chased down the wrong man and all of that. Do you feel that that revelation here? And obviously scream three taught us that the third part of a trilogy (laughs) sort of changes the, changes the game and reveals things that are, that we thought were true or not true and change, you know, all of that, which I love. I'm obsessed with trilogies. So anytime we have a, a, you know, I think this does work as a series ender as much as Spider-Man four was planned. And we'll get to that later. Do you think that that fundamentally affects or, or, retroactively weakens the first film and or the character's origin? No, because I mean, the first film, the first film told the story that absolutely had to tell to get Peter Parker from, you know, Peter Parker to Spider-Man. And this film, you know, it goes, it goes back to what I was saying about Raimi and understanding the fact that comic books you know, not only do comic books change and this types of stories change from author to author, comic books retcon the hell out of themselves. I mean, that's true. If you show me somebody who under who thinks there's one definitive canon of Spider-Man stories, I'm going to say, you know, they probably have a bit of a head up their ass as far as like, and have their own definitive ideas on, oh, it can't be anything else. I I think, you know, and it goes, we're, we'll talk more about this when it comes to Peter. Um, Absolutely. But I don't think this, I don't think this retroactively harms the first one because of the fact that it's the first one had very specific things that need to do narratively and thematically to get Peter Parker where he needed to go. 
Mm-hmm. This one has very specific things narratively and thematically that it has to do in order to get Peter to go where he needs to go at the end. Um, the reason it works here is because, you know, it's not completely unreasonable to have this idea of, oh, every, oh, we've had new evidence come in the case. That's basically all this is. Yeah. And it's basically one of those things where it's like, that's, that's all it is. It's a very, and God knows this happens in cases all the time in real life. And so the idea that now the fact that they were seeing on for two years is another matter entirely. And I guess there is, I guess that does kind of show a timeline because I think they did say it was, they, they've known about for two years. Um, with uh, Captain Stacy played by James Cromwell here. Um, it's, you know, but at the same time, I mean, no, it's, it's not unreasonable. And I don't think it harms. I, I don't think it harms the first one to a point where the first one is all of this un- invalid. I think it, it was valid in the moment. And this one is valid in the moment because of the fact that it, it inflames that emotion that drove Peter to do what he did at the, in the first film, which is where he needs to go and what the symbiote is basically going to, uh, what the symbiote is basically going to bring out of him throughout the film. It takes the, the cause and effect that led to, uh, that led him to become Spider-Man and it takes it from, you know, 100% direct cause and effect to, you know, uh, maybe 65% cause and effect. You know what I mean? Like, it's not the the man that he left, let leave, rob the uh, the boxing promoter or the wrestling promoter. Uh, it, it is not the man. He did not go downstairs and shoot Uncle Ben. There was a different person that yeah. pulled the trigger. But that guy, like bumped into, you know, Flint or distracted him or whatever. So it's, it's, it's a little, a little bit less of a direct cause and effect, but it doesn't, it doesn't negate it. It just, I don't know. I don't, I, I, I felt like the first one did it so well that why, why mess with it at all? But is my, was my initial take. And over time I've come to appreciate more, like, like we've said, it has to do with forgiveness and, and that's ultimately that's the the germinating seed that led to everything that came from Spider-Man as a concept. And and it, right. it causes Peter to question not only who he is as Peter Parker, but who he is as Spider-Man. The, you know, the fact that he has to that and you think you can you could read that into his reaction in Captain Stacy's office. It's like, you mean mm-hmm. I've been doing all of this <laughs> for two years based on yeah. not even yeah. having all the information? Like I don't even know who what, like my the foundation of my identity. My, my secret identity is now, you know, is now being called into question in addition to everything else in his life that's going on in this film. So from that perspective, that it, the way it yeah. upends Peter's life, the way that it leads to him having to do something he never thought he would be able to do, which is forgive the man who killed his uncle, which is even something mm-hmm. in uh, something in the second one that Aunt May is like, oh, you know, I even I I've often thought to myself if if I were to face the one responsible, 
you know, like, oh, who knows what I would do? And she kind of mm-hmm. brushes it off. Obviously, the implication there is that Peter feels like he is the 100% responsible for it because yeah. he let the man yeah. go and all that. Uh, so it, it brings those issues up. And I like that they keep Cliff Robertson, you know, on uh, on the hook for this trilogy by having him show up yeah. in that flashback. So it's it's not... Initially, it really kind of irked me watching it in 2007. But then over time, I'm like, I, I still don't love it, but I see what you're doing, movie. Uh, so I, I'm I'm, yeah. I'm come to appreciate the the choice. It's a bold it's a bold move. It's a bold move for Raimi to, to pull that first of all, too. And I like yeah. that he takes the chance of going all the way back uh, to that initial you know initial first half of the first film. Yeah. Well, and, and the thing is, I mean, it's not the, it, and certainly not the first time that we've seen, and it's not the only time we've seen comic book movies do that. I mean, even in the Dark Knight trilogy, they kind of do that with Ra's al Ghul yeah. and Bane. And, um, you know, like, again, it goes back to the fact that there's not one definitive canon to these movies. Now, yeah, they're to these comic book stories yes there are specific there are specific events and specific character identifiers that are crucial to those characters the way the story unfolds though is left to the imagination of the author and i think and we'll again we'll we'll talk about this more um when we talk about peter because i've i've got some very different perspectives that we will we will talk about in terms of how i not just in regards to flint marco's arc and i think it one of the things that that does is it it makes it makes flint marco to a certain extent those flashbacks make flint marco a bit more ambiguous until the end Mm -hmm. like you're not entirely sure because of the fact that he says that he killed Ben Parker, it's easy to see why Peter would think that all of a sudden it was in cold blood. And then later you come to realize it was an accident and it wasn't meant to happen that way. And that's ultimately what leads him to be able to forgive Flint. And I, I think that's one of Again, I mean, you know, messy plot-wise, but thematically very strong as a whole for this movie. Yeah, yeah, it, definitely. I, 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 it's also startling, even now watching it, how quickly after he gets that information that Peter's ready to go out and and kill this guy, like almost immediately. Like he goes back, he's listening to the radio. MJ's like, "Oh, you know, if you need help, I want to be there for you." He's like, "Yeah, yeah, that's great. Whatever, go away. I'm busy." And as soon as he finds out where Flint's at, he's just like ready to flush him out. You get that Spider-Man saying good riddance to someone that he thinks he just murdered. Again, it takes Spider-Man to a place. I think a lot of mainstream moviegoers were like, I don't know if I like this isn't my Spider-Man. I'm like, well, that's the point. Spider-Man's got some some growth to do. Um uh, so yeah, so then yeah. he teams up with Venom and all that stuff, and uh, you know that's fine. You have to have them. You have to have the villain team up. It's a superhero movie, and then at the end he forgives yeah. him. And then watching it now, I'm like, but what about his daughter? <laughs> like his whole point was to steal right. money for his daughter, and he's just like, I forgive you, Peter says, and then he's just like, cool. I'm gonna just fade away as a cloud. 
it's like your daughter is still sick, dude. Like I, it's almost like I almost <laughs> want to like Spider-Man, the, the famous neighborhood Spider-Man who just got the key to the city. Can you like rally the people in New York? Everybody puts five <laughs> bucks in and you can, can, uh, you know, take care of Flint's daughter and get her the treatment she does. I mean, uh, give me a post credit scene or something like, I feel like that would be an easy fix there, but movie, the movie doesn't, <laughs> doesn't, you know, doesn't prioritize that, but that's just, just, just me nitpicking no, on like, I feel like that would yeah. be a little bit of resolution. Like, how can you help him out? He's like, he's like, I forgive you. He's like, cool. Can you, can you give me a loan? Like what's going on? Spider-Man. I know your secret. <laughs> this is how much I need. Otherwise I, I'm going to, I'm going to tell the bugle what I know. Mm-hmm. Uh, Good. No, yeah, and I. It's funny. I never even thought about that. That would have been, but the the fact is, it's like again, it. This movie ultimately is coming back to Peter. Right. It's not coming back Absolutely. to. You know, it's not about Flint Marco. It's about Peter Parker and Peter coming to that place where he forgives Flint is the emotional beat that we're waiting for. You know, everything else is just. You know, maybe sure there's there's certainly a way, like you said, like, oh, hey, can we get him some, you know, help with his daughter? But at the same time, that would just feel like, oh, you're it would be almost like, oh, we've got this many more endings in the fellow in the return of the king that we've got basically tie up every loose end at this point. Um, Right. But uh no, I mean ultimately it's Peter's story. I and I understand where you're coming from, and that's that's actually I'll admit that's something that I really haven't thought about a whole lot over the years. But it's it it's it's one of those things where it's like you know I mean it ultimately is about Peter's resolution more than Marco's. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I just that would have been a nice kind of tie up loose end kind of thing. Uh, yeah, we. Anything else about Flint Marco before we move into uh, Edward Brock Jr.? Um, just just because of the fact, I mean, you know, this is, you know, and because of the retconning of Uncle Ben's death, that's part of why the question you had for me as far as, like, which of these villains, if I could only keep one, I would have. Why it was so hard to pick Venom over Sandman is because of the fact that, like, Sandman's actions are essentially the ones that I feel like you can kind of... are essentially the ones that drive Peter more to this darker place. But the reason... Part of the reason why I I feel like you could almost get rid of it and it would be maybe not a great movie, but at least a very good one and one that could work is because of the fact that this is of course, presuming that you keep the Peter Parker narrative with MJ and Harry just intact. So, and part of the reason why I, I said that it's like of the two main, of the two other villains, I could see, Venom being more important than Sandman is because even though you're oh, even because not only do you take out the retcon, I I still think that if you kept everything with Peter, MJ and Harry intact, I think Venom fits more smoothly 
fits just as smooth can fit just as smoothly into that aspect in terms of the the changes in Peter when it comes to MJ, the way that he interacts with Harry and the way that progresses. I think you could have basically you you could have essentially told the same story as effectively with Venom, but I don't know that you can and not Sandman, but I don't know that you could necessarily say the same thing if you take Venom out and leave Sandman in. Right. No, that makes sense. Yeah. I, I, he also just fits more naturally into things. He, he fits into the environments and dynamics that we know. Uh, he brings, you know, he brings yeah. the bugle into the picture narratively. He brings Gwen Stacy, another character iconic from the comics here, whose introduction is very different than what we got in the comics and who I think is also underwritten. I think Bryce Dallas Howard does well with what she has. Uh, but, yeah. you know, it it it, uh, it feels like, you know, you get Eddie and Gwen as sort of a, a, a uh, an Elseworlds version of Peter and MJ. In a, in a way, uh, where he yeah. wants, he's, you know, Edward, uh, Eddie even comes in, in this scene that we meet him specifically in the, the rescue scene with Gwen sort of at the, you know, the high rise with the crane and all of that. And, um, he's like, Oh, you know, he said he goes to see, uh, Jay, Jonah Jameson shortly thereafter. And he's saying about, Oh, I have a girl who I intend to marry basically like exact mirror of, of Peter's situation with MJ. Yeah. Uh, all of that. I think, I, I think it, it's, it, you know, the fact it, it's a little on the nose that he's a photographer and all that, but I think it works. I think, mm-hmm. I think it works as sort of a, uh, a kind of, <sighs> different circumstances, what would Peter and MJ, what could they have been? You know, it's, it, what if, if, if yeah. Peter was, was an asshole and was kind of slimy and really wanted to work at the daily bugle, this is what he could achieve kind of thing. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and that's what we see later on when he essentially becomes that when he debunks Eddie's, uh, Eddie's photo and really pushes is like, I'll take the the staff job, double the money. Like, you know, there's a certain aspect of that that are like, oh, he's being direct, he's being assertive, he's going after what he wants, blah, blah, blah. But he, it's like, at what cost? <laughs> this is humanity sort of hanging in the balance. And I think uh, Eddie Brock is someone who who embraces being bad. It makes him feel good. Like, this is, he kind of finds his truest self. So if we're going with mm. the four men who are in this path of darkness and or redemption, Eddie's the one who who meets the darkness and is like, "Ooh, I like this. I, I feel home here. I'm gonna I'm gonna be a villain. This is what I was meant to meant to be." As opposed to the other characters, who have at least some sense of uh, of you know, there's some salvation for the rest of them. Yeah, and you know, it was funny. I was uh, I was listening a bit to the uh, riff tracks on Spider Man Three before we started recording, and one of the things that they point out in the uh, scene with Flint Marco and his uh, daughter is that, okay, so we've absolutely, you know, we've absolutely made sure 100% that Peter Parker is not going to kill Flint Marco. Like it's basically, it's, you know, like you, like you were saying about Harry, you know, telegraphing, Oh, he's very much going to die in this they kind of do the same with Flint where it's like, Oh yeah, Peter's not going to kill Flint Marco. That's not going to, 
be the case regardless of what we find out about him later. And, uh, you know, mm-hmm. that's, that's, I think where Eddie Brock comes into play. And like you said, I mean, they're like the Elseworlds version of Peter and MJ. And which is funny because of the fact that the way that Gwen Stacy comes into it, I love the, I love the fact that she's like, you know, when he goes, oh, what about that amazing night? It's like we just had coffee, Eddie. That's, that's all. <laughs> yeah, this, this he's delusional on top of everything else. Like he's completely delusional. And it's like I know that Topher Grace is not necessarily he's not comic book specific to how Eddie Brock and Venom are but at the same time if you take him as a mirror of Peter Parker it makes a lot of sense and I think one of the things that works so well about it is the fact that you know Peter Park Tobey Maguire is so sincere as an actor he he's so sincere and Topher Grace is very much a smartass mm-hmm. and very much as sarcastic. You look at that 70s show, you look at a bunch of the other stuff that he's done over the years. He's very much he's very much sarcastic. So him being Eddie Brock, who like he he's going to be derivative. He's going he's not going to be a fan of what Peter Parker is because of the fact that, you know, he's he's not the same type of person peter is he's going to be derisive of peter's work and he's going to feel like he's entitled to earn that and i think that's one of the things that's so great about the fact that they did cast topher grace and the way that that film dynamic works is the fact that as much as peter parker continues to work on Peter Parker is always trying to work towards what he wants. And Topher Grace just wants it handed to him. And I think that's another aspect of this that really plays out very well in the movie. Yeah, I, I exactly. I, I agree with, with all of that. Like I, I, he also now in today's world is very much a reflection of, you know, all these like, toxic males entitled privilege etc cetera, etc cetera. like i think he's a reflection of that too in a, in a, in a in a time 15 years ago where that wasn't as common like in every movie now even not to go back to the batman but the batman again where it's just like all the little the riddler's got his little cult of people who are like oh they're gonna hear us we need our voices to like a bunch of doofy white guys basically and yeah. and to have this movie, you know, having Eddie Brock just kind of be basically one of those like, you know, uh, like frat guy style, like, oh, I'm just going to saunter up and ask for what I want. And then it's just going to. Yeah, I, I, I think that that is an, a really interesting take on Venom. And like you said, if you're expecting big, burly, you know, Eddie Brock, like he is in the comics or the animated series or whatever. Uh, I, I don't think that would, first of all, that body type, that physicality, that's very similar to what we get with Sandman to an extent, like broad shoulders, yeah. sh- you know, built, not like, you know, 
uh, not like, like you said, Dave Bautista, or whenever you see uh, a Schwarzenegger movie and he's just like a family man, but he's Schwarzenegger, you're like, I don't know how this works. <laughs> I don't. Conan the Barbarian, yeah, maybe. Like this family man, just I don't know. Unless it's True Lies, then that that movie uses it well. Um, but but I digress. But yes, if you're if you're casting a a an evil Tobey Maguire, essentially, I, I think he works really well here. And how how pitiful he gets so quickly when when Peter calls him on his shit and he's like. No, you know, if you do this, yeah. you know, nobody, I'll, I'll lose everything. No one will hire me. And he's, and he, and, and then Peter has, again, by this point, dark Peter has one of the, one of the best lines in the movie, which is you want forgiveness, get religion, which again is something that leads directly into a, you know, kind of like Harry's yeah. like, Oh, my friends, I would die for them leads directly to next time we see Eddie Pretty much. I think he sees uh, he sees Peter on a date with with Gwen, which is his like final straw. Then he goes to church and he's like, yeah. Lord, <laughs> please strike. Da- please kill Peter Parker, <laughs> because you don't understand. <laughs> I've been your servant all my life and all, all this like it's like, geez, dude. <laughs> well, and the the thing is, he feels like he's been humbled. He, he right. feels like he's been humbled for all of his arrogance. And he really hasn't. I mean, Peter really has by that point. And we'll, again, we'll, we'll get into it. Um, but yeah, I mean, the thing that's kind of interesting about Peter calling Brock out on what he does is that Brock very much did plagiarize from Peter. It's not something that was just made up. And so, it's interesting that you right. have that little bit of Peter that's still honest, but he also turns it into a heel turn. And it's it's really kind of interesting how that worked out in the context of this film is the fact that it's like, because by this point, we've already seen him starting to strut his stuff, starting to feel more arrogant, more more falsely confident but at the same time he's still kind of peter parker to a certain extent and because of the fact that he he just you know he was able to because of the fact that who he is he's not lying when he calls out eddie brock it's something that genuinely eddie brock did and so that's why that's why the scene in the church is so funny because of the fact that, and what makes Eddie such an interesting foil for Peter is because of the fact that Peter gets what he wants by still being Peter, but also walking on the wild side. Whereas Eddie, he feels like he's entitled to all of this and he can walk on the wild side and he didn't expect it but you didn't expect to get called out on it yeah yeah exactly it's it, it is it is again going back to what you said earlier it's that darkly comic edge to this movie where you're like this guy this guy is yeah. literally like you don't understand i've i've been wronged i'm like no dude you wronged yours you played yourself pretty much is what it is yeah and then you exactly. get that 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 bell tower sequence you get the bell tower sequence with the symbiote which i remember 
being a, a big deal. I think they played it at some comic con probably the year before or whatever that, that like this yeah. sizzle reel that ended with that, like that shot of venom kind of snarling at the camera. Uh, mm-hmm. and it's attracted to him. It's attracted to his aggression. They established that early on. We haven't even mentioned, uh, Dylan Baker yeah. in this thing back as, as Dr. Connors sort of, uh, mm-hmm. the, the scientific perspective on what this thing is. Uh, and, and that leads to, probably the most criticized part of the, this character, which is the Venom design. This is my issue. Like, I don't, I think Topher Grace works as Eddie Brock. It's when you get to Venom where he's the, where, where he still has the Topher Grace voice where he peels the face back yeah. every two seconds and he has like vampire teeth underneath. Like it's the design elements yeah. of Venom that, <laughs> that bug me with this character more than, more than even the Topher Grace part of it. Like I think Eddie, I think Eddie Brock stuff works a lot better than the Venom stuff, I guess is my point. I, I would agree with you on that. Um, I, you know, rewatching it this morning, I had forgotten just how little they really change Topher Grace's voice when it comes to the Venom aspect. And it's like, if they had changed it in the same way that like, say they did Paul Dano in the Batman, I, as the Riddler behind the voice, behind the mask and stuff like that, darker, more malevolent. I, I think that would have been a much better choice. Um, you know, yeah, the vampire, the the teeth and stuff like that. That's such a weird thing to do because you didn't see that with Peter Parker. But it and it's just one of those things. Yeah, I I agree with you. He's much more successful as Eddie Brock than he is as Venom, and uh, it's it's one of those things that you know it it's at that point where. It's at that point where you you probably should have done something else in terms of the design. Maybe if you're going to manipulate Topher Grace's physique, physical appearance to, you know, make him more villainous as Venom when the mask comes off, maybe you should have done something more in the respect of, I mean, at the time, performance capture wasn't quite as significant as it is now, or it mm-hmm. was even a few years later with Avatar. But at the same time, you you had Gollum, you had Andy Serkis, who would already, you had Davy Jones from the Pirates of the Caribbean movies. So you already had a blueprint of how that could work. And maybe if you had gone that route with Topher Grace, where you're just completely changing the physique once he becomes Venom and then becoming the big burly Venom from the comics, from the animated series, that might have been more effective. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that that's where the Venom part of it loses me. I mean, and, and the, the Tom Hardy Venom, which we've got over a decade later, like obviously some people really like those movies. Some people really can't stand those movies, but say what you will about them. Venom's the design of Venom in those movies kind of works for, for that character. So if they had gone for something more like that, I think that part of it wouldn't have been, wouldn't have been an issue for me. Uh, And then when he becomes Venom, not only do I have issues with the design part of it, but then his and Sandman's plan is, 
a copy and paste of the last two movies where it's oh we're gonna kidnap yeah spider-man's <laughs> girlfriend and put him in a put her in a precarious situation to draw him out so that we can kill him and i'm like where have i seen this before right. <laughs> um so that's where again the movie's sort of like i was telling my wife earlier this this uh this morning i was actually finishing this movie because i i didn't i started it too late last night and and it's two hours and 20 minutes or so so it's like it's it's for me probably one of the most frustrating superhero movies because like every 10 minutes I'm like I'm vibing with it and then like it it drop it loses me and then I kind of gets me back and then it loses mm-hmm. like it's like up and down with this and so for me this act this third act the part before Harry enters and it's just you know the newscasters being like oh this could be the end of Spider-Man yeah. the brutality <laughs> of it all of that I'm like oh brother um the the yeah. the you know Eddie's lame joke about his spidey sense tingling and all of that it's just like ugh not not into it and the design did not help uh, but again like the Harry thing I I think it's interesting that where it ends up is Eddie being like no I can't lose this this power that I found yeah. I would rather get I'd rather die for this this dark power that I found than live as this pathetic shell yeah. of, of who I used to be. Mm-hmm. Well, and and the thing is, it's like Eddie is the the thing, and it also goes back to like why are the characters behaving in that way? With Harry, it's very obvious by that point that he is ready to sacrifice himself for his friends, much in the way that we've kind of seen Peter making sacrifices for people over the years being Spider-Man, that dual identity with Eddie, like you said, and you're right. He, he just can't let go of that. He's, he's not doing it be out of redemption. He's doing it out of the sense that he finally feels whole in a way. The problem is him feeling whole is this toxic aspect of himself, this toxic persona of himself that just really is untenable beyond this point. And so he's, if, if he's going to go out, he, he needs to go out with, you know, with, with what made him feel like the most alive, really. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good way. That's a good way of looking at it. It's, and, uh, I, I it, it as a counterpoint to Peter's arc, which he he once he goes to that dark place, he rejects it and he tears that suit off. Yeah. in the Bell Tower. Once you have that yeah. that moment with MJ, which we'll we'll start building to now. Uh, any any other thoughts on uh, Sandman or Venom? Because I think we're ready to to go full Peter MJ for the pretty much the majority of the rest of this episode. Uh, no, I really don't. I mean, we'll we'll touch on them again. Exactly. Uh, you know, I'll touch on them again throughout the context of uh, Peter and MJ. But let's let's go ahead and do this. So the first thing I I noticed, obviously, this film, like the other two, opens with narration. But another, one thing that I noticed, if one way that this movie is fundamentally different than I think any other Spider-Man film uh maybe you know excluding into the spider-verse with peter with peter a parker i i guess uh is that this peter but this is the first and only spider-man movie that opens that i can recall correct me if i'm wrong 
where Spider-Man is like, hey, guys, it's me, your friendly neighborhood. You know, things are going pretty great for me. Yeah. And I'm like, so right <laughs> off the bat, I, I feel like as a Spider-Man fan, as a moviegoer, you're like, wait a minute, everything's good? Like, you're happy? Like, I don't, what is this? This is not, almost like, like we define our Spider-Man stories by, well, Peter Parker needs to be in a really miserable place. Uh, and I feel like that, yeah. that right off the bat throws people off because we're, it feels weird to see him happy. Uh, at least at the beginning of the story, uh, are any thoughts on how that like immediately sets, you know, contrasts everything we we've seen really of this character. No, that's an excellent point. And I mean, one that I hadn't really given much thought to, but because it has been a while since I've seen the first two, I just watched the, uh, third one in preparation for this episode but um no you're right i mean it is you know it it is very much opposed to what we're used to what we were certainly used to when it came to uh peter parker in the raimi trilogy and then obviously what we've seen in the uh later iterations with andrew garfield tom holland and then into the spider verse. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting. I, I think that's, that's such an interesting choice on Raimi's part, but it's also one that makes a lot of sense because of the fact that he, Peter Parker has essentially lulled himself into a false sense of security about his life. You know, he's yep. doing well with Spider-Man. He's doing great things as Spider-Man. People are accepting him as Spider-Man despite what J. Jonah Jameson wants. You know, he's happy with MJ. He's, you know, things are going well. And I I think it's one of those things where this is, this is part of where the thematic part of the movie really is going to come into play because of the fact that it's it's at that some of those moments where you feel like you're at your happiest can be f- misleading. Mm. And I think that's one of the more interesting things about this, where it's like, even if we tell each, each ourselves we're happy, there's going to be something that comes up that really hammers home that we're not happy whatsoever. And, we're we're actually we're actually getting ready to we're we're going to have a hard time coming forward. And we we sort sort of start seeing that pretty pretty early on. We you know we starts with the MJ's kind of musical number, and this this movie sort of low key a musical. There's a lot of uh, yeah. sequences <laughs> where either characters are singing or dancing. Or, uh, you know, like the birth of Sandman, it's like really putting the, the score front and center. And I think that's an interesting aspect of this film as well. And I, and I do enjoy, uh, the, the musical bookends of, of MJ, uh, you know, singing on stage and then singing in the, in the, the, uh, the club, the jazz club at the end. Uh, but yeah. you see pretty, pretty much off the bat, like he's smiling. She's very neurotic and nervous about her first night on Broadway. Harry's up in the balcony scoping things out, planning some dark shit. And so, you know, that Harry uh, or Peter is just, it's not, it's that he's happy because he's not paying attention. He's, he's, he's because he's oblivious because he's so 
so it, it, he's getting inflated with ego about Spider-Man and, you know, his, his the, you know, um, how well he's doing in school and whether he intends it or not, the attention he's getting from his attractive female classmate, whether he's not that he's necessarily pursuing anything with Gwen, but you know, he's, his ego yeah. is just different aspects of his life that, that he is just like, Oh, okay. Everything's where I don't have to like, you know, I don't have to focus on the, the great responsibility part of that. Uh, that slogan very much anymore. And you can sense that pretty early mm-hmm. on when him and MJ, like their dynamic feels off. She's concerned about, about yeah. things she's feeling, you know, we, we established in the previous films that she has, uh, had this troubled home life. Her, her father was, you know, an alcoholic and, and, you know, kind of belittled her all her life. We see that in the first film, even early on. And she references again in here, uh, and he's being there for her, but also under the under the pretense of, oh, you know, I, this happens to me all the time. Like people say Spider-Man and I'm yeah. like, do I deserve this? I'm like, and he, she's like, it's not about you. So it's clearly this relationship yeah. has issues. They can they can lay in the, a giant web and stargaze all they want. But there's fundamental problems that neither of them are addressing. And I, I think one making a a. a you know, two to $300 million superhero movie that kind of upends the expectations of what that character is. Like I said, by starting with being happy with him being happy instead of miserable, like we know Spider-Man usually is, or at least struggling, you know, hanging in there, maybe optimistic struggling, but you know, he's hasn't gotten it all together. Starting a movie with him feeling like he's gotten it all together. And then having that film be largely about, relationship issues I think is kind of a ballsy move and mm-hmm. I, and the more that I'm saying it the more that I'm like and I know this has now become a hackneyed thing that everybody's like oh it's the you know everybody says it's about every franchise but it feels like in a way this movie you know all the issues that we're talking about obviously are all present there's too much going on etc cetera, etc cetera. and a lot of that's Sony's fault in trying to push these things on to Sam Raimi but it feels like and this is going to feel hackneyed as I say it it feels like kind of the last Jedi of Spider-Man movies. And it's like, this is what you know Spider-Man to be. Let's try something different and see how, what, what Spider-Man does when he's put in this situation. When, when we really challenge him and push him to his limit, how far will he go? You know? And I, I think that is in, is one, you know, explains a lot about why some people hate this movie so much. And it explains why, to me, it's always felt challenging, but also satisfying at the same time in some ways. Yeah. The comparison to The Last Jedi is very apt. Um, and honestly, I mean, you know, I, I've been a Star Wars fan as long as I've been alive. I've been alive as long as Star Wars has been in existence. And there are some times where the last Jedi is my favorite star Wars. And it's because of the ways that it challenges the character of Luke. Um, and I, you know, that's me talking as a 40 year old fan who's gone through his own self doubts, his own senses of, you know, un uncertainty of my own self-worth and that's a big reason why i love this movie as much as i do um for all of its faults i this is honestly my favorite superhero movie of all time it's not my favorite comic book movie because for close watch we talked about my favorite comic book movie of all time which is the crow we did i this one 
part of the reason I was so excited to talk to you about this one is because this one came out at a time where I was I was fe- feeling very uncertain about myself as an individual and I'd really started to I'd really started to understand that I was having some emotional issues come through in terms of anxiety in terms of depression that I just was not was not really dealing with on the way that I should have and a lot of that had to do with relationships or lack thereof in that case um I'm very much a late bloomer in that respect um and I was about, I was going on 30 when Spider-Man 3 came out in 2007. And uh, at the time, I mean, I had started to, part of the reason this movie means so much to me is because of the fact that when I see Peter Parker's journey in this film, I saw something akin to what I was going through at that time. And that's part of the reason why, as flawed as this film is, it landed with me because thematically, I I felt like Peter Parker. I felt like Peter Parker. I was going on the same emotional journey that Peter was. Obviously, it's a completely different thing because, you know, I'm not a superhero. But the fact is, I was going through these points where... I was not sure. I There were times where I felt like I was confident about the direction my life was going, but there were also things in my life where I wasn't quite as confident about. And I wasn't sure. I was making mistakes. I was letting my frustrations get the best of me. I was getting... I was... I was afraid at the time to talk about it in a way that might have helped me, you know, whether it meant going to therapy, whether it meant just talking to friends about how I was really feeling. It was, it was tough. And, you know, I mean, there were times where it's like, you know, I had that arrogance that Peter had where it's like, Oh, well, I mean, this is, you know, this is how I, you know, this is, I, I kind of know what you mean, but it's like ultimately you don't because it's it's a different situation. And a few months after uh, Spider-Man 3 came out, I, in addition to all of that, I had health issues that I was struggling with. Um, I had been diagnosed as asthmatic a couple of years before, but I wasn't taking care of it the way I should have. And in September of 07, I was, I felt like emotionally speaking, I felt like I was getting on shaker, better ground, but then physically I was having a really hard time. And what happened was I basically neglected my breathing so much to where I was short of breath on a regular basis. And at one point I had a hard time getting to sleep because of it. One day at work, I went and I just couldn't get past my, 
just couldn't get through the shift, so I get sent out. I tried to get comfortable, couldn't get comfortable with my parents were like, We need you need to go to the emergency room. So went to the emergency room, they let me in immediately because I my face was evidently purple. And I lay down on the uh bed that they took me to and passed out. Next thing I knew, I was in ICU. And what had happened was I'd had pneumonia and a collapsed lung. So I eventually got out of the hospital. And that really, I was trying to get back to getting back to work. I was on medical leave. And that was very isolating. And... You know, it was funny. That was around the time that Spider-Man 3 came out on DVD. So I picked it up and watched it again. And, you know, I I felt that connection that I had with it back in May. And, uh, you know, as my rehabilitation physically got going, I kind of let the emotional part go. And it got to a point where... I was, as much as I was improving physically, I was devolving, emotionally speaking. And I basically started to get to the point where I was alienating friends and, you know, people I cared about. And when I got to my lowest point, I, I realized that finally something needed to change. And so I started taking medication and I started to really read about, you know, ideas about self-esteem. And one of the things that I realized is that, you know, a lot of my ma- self-esteem was manufactured uh, because there were serious issues that I was not dealing with. And eventually going starting the medication eventually led to starting therapy, which is something I continue to do to this day. And all throughout that time, one of the things that really helped me come to grips with what I was struggling with, how I was struggling with things, was Peter's journey in Spider-Man 3. It felt very much like what I was dealing with as well. And... That's in it's one of those things where it's like that's why I will always cherish this movie above so many other superhero movies because it's it's not just an entertainment value for me that this movie works, it's an emotional component as well. And one of and we'll we'll talk about it a little bit, but the the moment you, you brought up Aunt May and she always seems to have one moment in each of these movies where it's like, here, let me spell out thematically what we're talking about here. My, I think my favorite moment of hers in these three movies is after Peter hurts MJ, goes to the church, rids himself of the black suit, Spider-Man, the symbiote, and Aunt May comes to see him, and he's like, I, you know, I don't know what to do. And 
the thing that she says that's so beautiful, this is where Rosemary Harris in these films is so crucial. We talked about Cliff Robertson with Uncle Ben, but Rosemary Harris is as essential to these movies and why these movies come together. She says, you start by doing the hardest thing, you forgive yourself. Once I start to forgive myself, that's when it really clicked with me and really started to change because I was putting so much, I had so much guilt that I had, that I started to hold on to. I had so much guilt that I was putting on other people, like other people were worse as responsible for my actions and mine. And that's not the way it goes. But I love Aunt May saying, you forgive yourself. I believe in you, Peter. You're a good person. And I know you'll find a way to put right. Then there's that pause. And the last two words are in time. <laughs> and that in time is as important a line of dialogue in this movie as any because it shows Peter, you'll figure this out, but it may take time and you have to give, in addition to giving yourself time, you have to give other people time too. And that's one of the things that's so beautiful about this movie. You know, you, you brought the last Jedi. I, that's, Luke's journey in that movie is as impactful for me as Peter Parker's is here for the exact same reason because it's about a hero failing and forgetting why he's the hero in the first place and having to figure out where, how to get back to that place and that's that's why this movie just has always been so much yeah i mean well first of all thank you for sharing all that that was i, I love hearing those details about because so much of the movies that we love is informed by when we discover them and how we connect to them and that, that at, at varying points in our life and so i, I love that this movie has such a, a personal place for you uh in in your heart and and to the movie's point, it's, you know, these films, like we were saying, they're about characters, they're about relationships, they're about, the first one is is a not so subtly uh, veiled metaphor for adolescence coming of age and like, oh, my yeah. body's changing, <laughs> you know, and, the, this, and then the second and third are really more when you're a young adult and you're trying to figure out your life, who you are inside, who you want to be with, who you love, all that stuff. And I think that's part, what you just hit on is the foundation of this trilogy, but also specifically this film is the first one is Peter's changing into the man, you know, and Uncle Ben says, uh, the man you're going to become the rest of your life. And then the second one is Peter deciding, I want to be with MJ. MJ wants to be with me. Let's give this a shot. And the third one is Peter being like, okay, now who is Peter? <laughs> like, who am I now? Exactly. Who is that man that I was turning into in the first one? Who is that? And the fact that this movie 
uses the the symbiote, which obviously this is black goo that falls on a meteor from the sky, you know, again, just comic book stuff, comes into his life and it, and is an allegory for him, you know, you can call it uh, addiction, you can call it depression, you can call it, you know, whatever, whatever, a, a, a medical condition, like, like in your case, for example, like you can call it all kinds of different things. It's an affliction in your life, whether it's physical or emotional, mental, whatever it may be. And you have to sort of suffer through it and sort yourself out and figure out who you are when you reach the other side. And I think that's yeah. what this film is about. And it, uh, it, it, the fact that the, the, the fact that the plot line when involving Sandman goes back to the first film when that change was happening, I think brings the, this, his story sort of full circle in that by the end of this, you know, I, I mentioned, uh, on, and we'll, we'll, I want to bring up no way home briefly before we, we finish this up later on. Uh, oh yeah. He, um, that, that trilogy, the end of no way home is basically like just letting you know, this whole trilogy was an origin story. It's, you know, now he's Spider-Man. It's also, it's almost like that, that kind of idea here. Now he's ready to really yeah. become, Spider-Man, like who, who he is going to be adult Peter Parker now kind of arrives at, you know, at the end of this movie, I think the, uh, the, the Bradley Cooper star is born. Like they, they, during the press tour for that movie, they were like the very end of the movie, when she looks up into the camera, that's when Allie, this, you know, that's when the star is born. It's, it's the story of her, of her birth as an, as an individual, as a human being, et cetera. And I think this trilogy kind of does the same thing for, for Peter and completes his, you know, if not complete, and again, not completes his, his growth and his maturity, but gets him to a place where he's ready to really, uh, to really sort of make some headway and, and patch things up with MJ and all this other stuff. But yeah, no, it's it's it speaks yeah. to the set. It's why the it's why the symbiote and the dark suited Spider Man was such a, a smart narrative, you know, sort of plot thread to pursue, in that it it it, mm-hmm. it does unveil so much about this character that we haven't really, you know, that's been kind of sitting below the surface that we never really scratched into. Yeah, exactly. And you know, the the fact is, it's like one of the one of the reasons that. That's part of why it was so hard for me to make that decision of like, which, because I mean, ultimately, both Flint Marco and Eddie Brock and Venom, they they all play an essential part to this narrative that we're seeing in Spider-Man three. But I, you know, and so in a way, you can't really have one without the other. You have to have all the elements of it. And, uh, you know. And especially with Flint Marco being respon- being the one who killed Peter Uncle Ben, one of the things that really struck me the second time um, with regards to or, or this most recent time watching uh, Spider-Man 3 for this podcast was the flashbacks. I mean, obviously, part of it is retconning, part of it is like, but it's also it's also a reflection of what's going on in Peter's mind. He's visualizing this as the worst case scenario, as a catastrophic thinking of like, this is what happened to Uncle Ben. It's not that he just got shot. He got shot in cold blood. He got shot in a violent manner 
that he hadn't considered before and having those type of thoughts go through your head and thinking about the worst case scenario it's it's tough i mean i'm somebody who deals with i'm somebody who still struggles with catastrophic thinking to a large degree in my life and um so having that hit me in that way is was really impactful this past time this last time watching it because it's like oh my god that that just really hit me in a way that i didn't necessarily see coming but i can completely understand why it's part of what drives peter it's not it's not as much it's not just the information of oh i've got somebody somebody else's was responsible for the death of my uncle is that i've got this you know i've got this scenario going around in my head that i can't get rid of and i'm having a hard time struggling with it and you know he you know what you were saying what you said as we started this this part where it's like they both have things that they aren't talking about i think mj is more open to talking about than peter and you were talking about with eddie brock the fact that he's basically this this example of toxic masculinity and toxic you know idea of feeling entitled as a as a man you know peter parker in this film is a different type of toxicity because of the fact that he his is veiled in the idea that he got what he wanted and he's and it's it's clouding his judgment on how he handles everything else he, he doesn't have any self-awareness <laughs> this is what it is it's no. just in it, he, he thinks he does but he doesn't yes yeah exactly exactly and it's like it's not so much it's not maliciousness at first. You know, he doesn't no. he doesn't uh, do the upside down kiss with Gwen because he's like, oh, I'm gonna really stick it to MJ. You know, it, it's he didn't oh, even no. think yeah. of it that way. He was just like, oh, it'll make the you know yeah. it'll make people cheer and whatever. <laughs> Plus, maybe on some yeah. level, he's like, and this girl's attractive. I don't know. You know, he's just kind of like mm-hmm. how how kind of almost wants to see how much he can get away with. I think on some level, so, you know, maybe subconsciously even. And so he's just kind of testing things out and and uh, I don't know. It's you, you see it in the restaurant scene where you get smug Peter, which is, again, very uncomfortable to watch smug Peter Parker being like planning his his proposal with the ring in the glass. And we know that she's going through this very tough time. And he's just, you know, completely, completely oblivious to everything that she's going through. One, because she's not telling him. And two, because he's not he's not making himself emotionally available to her. No, no. And and the thing is, it's like in a way, you can you can easily say that he doesn't necessarily deserve to know what's going on with her because of the fact that he's not thinking about anything other than himself. And he, like you said, he's looking through, looking at her struggles completely through his prism. And you know, you you've got the scene where he gets the ring from Aunt May and. 
you know, she tells him, you know, how she views it. She views marriage as like, you have to put your wife ahead of yourself. And, you know, can you do that? And it's like, yeah, I can do that. It's like, well, and he basically spends the next two hours showing that he cannot do that. And, um, Hmm. you know, and the thing is, it's like, I, you know, and I don't necessarily, I don't necessarily think with the kiss, he's thinking about it. I don't even think he's even thinking about unconsciously as like, oh, let's see how much I can get away with. I don't think that's it at all. I think he's just thinking. Hmm. He's not thinking about how MJ would react to that. He's not thinking about how, what that would mean to their relationship. And, um, you know, I mean, but one of the things that is great about this movie is that this is where, you know, yes, Toby McGuire was way too old to play like Peter Parker in the same way that we seen Tom Holland play Peter Parker. Right. But I think he was absolutely right for the Sam Raimi movies because he's so sincere. He's such a sincere presence on screen. You think about Pleasantville, you think about Seabiscuit, you think about those, some of those starring roles that he's had outside of this. And he's such a sincere performer like you believe him you believe that his peter parker would be completely oblivious to how he's hurting mj you completely believe that when he starts to feel this rush of uh false confidence in himself with the black suit spider-man that he sees himself in this sort of Saturday Night Fever type version of himself where it's like, I'm just going to, you know, and it's it's interesting. Like, we, we haven't talked, we haven't, we've sort of skimmed about the 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 dancing sequence. It's, it's interesting because of the fact that it's such an interesting parallel to this, the raindrops are falling on my head scene in Spider-Man 2. Yes. Because <laughs> in that scene, he's, he's laying himself go of the responsibility of spider-man and he's just he's giving himself a false sense of security about who he ultimately is in that one in this one he's got a false sense of confidence in himself because of the fact that gwen stacy's interested because he's able to finally have the job they wanted at the bugle and but what he's the but the problem he's finding out this time is that he's turning himself off to other people with his own behavior, and that's not something that resonates with him until what happens at the jazz club with uh, MJ. Right. Yeah. I. I. I... I have always sort of been on the side of the the uh, the James Brown dance sequence. I always thought it was pretty entertaining and pretty funny as a counterpoint to the raindrops yeah. sequence from the second film, as you mentioned. And the fact that 
you know, he, he, he's got this sense of arrogance of bravado, but ultimately he's still this nerdy white kid from Queens. So he's going to dance ridiculously (laughs) and not realize it. And the fact that the movie knows that it's ridiculous is indicative in the faces of all the women as he's walking past them. They're like, what the hell is wrong with this guy? Oh yeah. And I love that. It's, it's a self-aware. Now, if the, if he was doing that and the women were like fawning on him, then I'd be like, okay, movie, you don't know what you're doing. But Sam yeah. Raimi, as we were saying, he knows how to thread the camp in with, you know, the, the being true to his characters. Yeah, and throughout these these movies, like his McGuire's P- Peter Parker's always been kind of a little bit of a goofball. Yes, because in the first one, you have the scene where he's trying to get the web to sling, and he goes through all of the different iterations. You see his hand and you hear what he's trying to say and stuff like that you have the raindrops keep on on my head scene in you know you have that's that scene in two and then this one you have um you have him going back and forth with bruce campbell the incomparable bruce campbell as the maitre d and then you you also have him on the on there and then you you know, and it's interesting that it's like even during that fight scene we were talking about earlier with Harry, where he's got a swagger to him, where it's like he just doesn't think that Harry can kick his ass. Like he he knows he's got this fight, he, and he's mm-hmm. fine with it. Like he's already taken care of Marco, so he thinks. You know, he he's starting to get to the point where. You know, he's not quite at the point where he's got the job, but at the same time, you you start to see like the the lasting effects of him with the symbiote are starting to take hold and that false sense of confidence is starting to grasp. And the thing is, it's like before he takes the job, he before he's acting the fool women are giving him good looks, you know, and things aren't going well mm-hmm. with MJ. It's like things are going fairly decent with Gwen Stacy. So it's like, you know, he, he's starting to feel like, Oh yeah. Okay. I'm maybe getting a bit of my swagger back and maybe things are starting to turn out better. And then once he takes his full heel turn with Eddie as justified as it is, that's when like he goes full on with he's so confident that he can do no wrong. That's when sir people start to be repelled by him. Yeah, absolutely. I uh I, I it's it's the there's a couple of scenes I wanted to make sure I we bring up. One, I I like the fact that there are so many echoes in the Peter and MJ relationship here from the first two movies. Uh, she's working as a waitress again, like in the first one, she, uh, he's leaving, leaving messages on her machine and she's not answering. And then, you know, uh, unlike the second one here, she does try to pick up and barely misses him. So it's like, again, these two people are, are at that point still kind of both trying, but they're just not, it's not, they're not in sync there. There's a disconnect there, Mm -hmm. uh, which I, which I think is interesting. There is also the the breakup scene we didn't we didn't mention, which I think Kirsten Dunst is so good in. 
uh, you know, people, she, people, people love fantastic to, in this movie. She is, she is. And I think fans are very like, there's a certain segment of the fandom that really likes to take pot shots at her MJ. And I, I, that she's comes off as like needy or whatever in this. And I'm like, I don't I, what movie are you guys watching? Uh, like, I know. cause I, yeah. I don't get that. At, I've never gotten that at all. Like I've always been like, she's needs her partner to be there for her emotionally because she's dealing with a lot. And he's just like, yeah, Spider-Man, everything's going great. Um, you know, I, I don't see it that way at all. He's, if anything, it's way more on him. He's like a kind of a dick through almost this entire movie until after the thing like yeah. we said at the jazz yeah. club, which that dance sequence, that one I have some issues with where I'm like, okay, this is like the mask a little bit. Let's dial it down uh, with the, the swing yeah. and the tables yeah, and that. Is, that's, that's a bit absurd. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I, I think, I no, think that, that's, that's one where it go it goes into army of darkness, <laughs> like where it's just way too silly for its own good. Right. And I mean, you know, it's like Evil Dead 2, you still have a little bit of the blending of horror and comedy. It's a really good fit. Army of Darkness, for me, you just lean way into the silliness. It's still a fun movie, but it's like, yeah, it's just a little too crazy. And yeah, you're, you're, you're right about <laughs> right. that uh, dancing in the jazz club. But the thing is, here's why, and we'll, we'll talk about MJ a little bit more. Because you're absolutely right. Um, the reason that scene in the jazz club is still very effective because is because of what it does to the two main relationships. The two, when it comes to him and Gwen Stacy versus him and MJ. With Gwen Stacy, she finally sees, oh, you're doing all this to make her jealous about me at all this is about her and right. she's she feels some real guilt about that and like you said I mean you know she's very underwritten in the role but Bryce Dallas Howard does a really lovely job and that scene in particular is where mm-hmm. you get a really strong work from her but with MJ it's like just, he's twisting the knife even further and so as goofy as that is, as ridiculous as that scene is, he's being ridiculous and he's his priorities are completely out of whack because he's thinking all about himself and trying to make her jealous. Again, it's another case of where he's not putting the woman he's with first. And it's another indication that his maturity is just not there. Um, Kirsten Dunst, I have always loved her in these movies. Um, she and I. The thing is, I'm I'm with you. It is completely ridiculous. The complaint people complaining about, oh, she's so needy and stuff like that. She's also a well-rounded character. If she were yeah. just as simple as the girl next door who Peter is pining for, that's a boring character. That's not who this MJ is. And that's one of the things I like about Zendaya in the Tom Holland films, too, is that their take on MJ is very much of this is an individual character as opposed to 
this is just a prize for Peter to earn over the course of these mm-hmm. films. I love little grace notes in movies. Those little scenes that you don't necessarily pick up with immediately, but over times and rewatches, they really do become moments that you cherish in a movie because it's something that really hits home with something emotionally that's going on. Uh, in, in the crow, one of the scenes that I loved, and I think we touched on it in that discussion was the scene after, uh, Eric Draven's taking care of all of Tintin, all of T-Bird's posse. And he's walking by, he's walking down the, street and all of the kids on Halloween and masks go by him and he stops and you just have this beautiful piece of music by Graham Revel and this lovely cinematography by Wolski and it's it's this moment of just pure glow on Eric Draven's face which is something we haven't really seen throughout the rest of the film one of the scenes that really does this to me and what in this movie and what really hammers the emotional impact of Peter's actions in the jazz club home is when after he hits inadvertently hits MJ and after she says, who are you? And he doesn't know. And he, he goes down, he grabs the, he, he tries to hide the black suit, Spider-Man. And there's mm. a moment that Kirsten Dunst has that is just it's as emotionally it's it's not a moment where she breaks down in tears it's just a moment where you feel her disappointment in peter you feel her sense of and you feel her sense of as much of disappointment as empathy of peter because she sees how far he's fallen and it's just such a beautiful moment. I, I absolutely love that moment because it's, it's one of those things where if nothing else, that is one of those moments where it's like, Peter better wake the hell up and get mm-hmm. his shit together at that point. You get sort of a similar moment, I think, in the in the the third act when he catches her and she falls and he grabs her and swings and swings her to safety and he's like, "Are you okay?" And she's like, "Yeah, yeah." And he's like, "Good." And you have that moment yeah. of sort of sort of kind of you know they're obviously in a very bad place and him sort of them sort of trying to to be like oh well now what do we do now sort of thing like obviously they still have feelings for each other but they're in this like at an impasse in the relationship and and you know the thing that happened in the jazz club which really really turned on uh t- turned his uh woke him up to what was going on uh i i think that they have so much chemistry in these films as i said and she is so good uh, they, they, they work yeah. so well together off of each other. And, and that's the thing is that these movies know from the beginning, it opens the, the first one, who am I on? Oh, I'm, I'm Peter Parker. And like, Oh, it's and it. And it turns to MJ on the bus. 
you know, uh, it's all about a girl. The story is all about a girl. Like it's about the two of them. And they're, they're, they're even more so than ever before in this movie, they're kind of co-leads almost, uh, because this is so much yeah. about their relationship. And I love, uh, I love the little, like you were saying about little moments. Um, there's, there's this, the scene when, when, uh, he tells aunt May that, uh, that Flint Marco's dead and she's, she says, uh, oh, you know, but Spider-Man doesn't kill people. Uh, am I crazy or does does she know that he's he's Spider-Man? Because I feel like that is I, I, an I underlining think, I thing. Think, yeah, I think she knows. I, I think she knows. Okay. I mean, I, I kind of got that impression at least certainly in the second one. But yes. yeah, I, I think she knows. She just doesn't want to say it. Right, right. Yeah. There's no need for them to say it out loud. Right. And so. it's those little subtle, those little subtle details like that, that I love that Sam Raimi bakes into the characters. And yeah. then, uh, also the scene with, uh, Mr. Dickovich, who, who is such a memorable part of, of these latter two films in this trilogy, uh, even with minimal yeah. screen time, he snaps at him to fix the damn door. And then later he goes to apologize uh, you know, but when he snaps at him, he says, oh, you know, he's a, he's a good boy. He must be in some kind of trouble. Like it's the little, little moments that make these minor characters feel like real people. I, I mentioned in, uh, for the, in the first film, uh, Goblin goes in and, and, and attacks, uh, Jameson, uh, you know, who's, who takes the pictures of Spider-Man and he doesn't be like, Peter Parker, he's right over there. He's, he's like, I don't know who he is. His stuff comes in the mail. Like these little, even J. Jonah Jameson, even Mr. Ditkovich, who's obsessed with his rent. Uh, even these, you know, these, these minor characters who are in a couple scenes in each of these movies. They have that humanity. They, 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 they are in their own small ways, sort of standing up for the goodness that is inherent in Peter Parker. And I think that is is so critical to this movie where that goodness is really being tested. Mm -hmm. No. And you're, you're absolutely right about the scene with, uh, Mr. Uh, Dickovich where it's like, you know, he, 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 he feels like he, he can sense that something's not quite right with Peter and, um, you know, the, the scene with Aunt May and yeah, I, I do, you know, yes, I do think that, she's aware that he's spider-man and you know it's just one of those things where it's like you know it's it's just they understand why that can't be said you know and i i think so long as they understand that i i think that that's you know her it it just makes what she says to him so so impactful and you know the the scene where it's like and i i love the scene and two where uh where she you know where he tells her about uncle ben and how he feels responsible now he his lie is ultimately what got uncle ben killed it's like she you know as hard as that was for her to hear that she's ultimately going to forgive him mm-hmm. and she's ultimately going to understand that he didn't mean it. He didn't mean for that to happen because he understands 
Spider-Man, and he understands, she understands Peter. And uh, Dunst in these movies, like, you know, I mean, again, you know, if she's not necessarily what you pictured for MJ, she's what Sam Raimi pictured for MJ. Mm. And in this one, I, I think back to her performance in The Power of the Dog, which was justly acclaimed this year. And it's like, she's in in a sense her some of her character in that movie is going through the same thing that she's going through in this movie where it's like she's going through she's having a hard time emotionally speaking and she's unable to really voice that to the person who says that they love her and it's it's one of those things where it's like it's self-destructive that it's it's self-destructive and that scene in uh this one where she breaks up with him like you can tell how much they cared about these characters and how much they cared about this arc in that scene um and i love the ending of this. I love the fact that there's no dialogue between them yes. in the final moment. It's just again, it's this understood sense of I want to, you know, I'm ready to give this a real shot. And her by her taking his hand, it shows that she is too. And I, I just, there, there's so much that I love about this movie. And uh, again, it's, it's flawed, but it's so much of uh, what this movie does that's so su- successful. And we haven't really, we've sort of touched on the church scene from Eddie Brock's perspective, but I, I just want to say mm-hmm. the, the scene where he goes to the church, the iconic shot of him as Spire, Black Suit Spider-Man as the gargoyle up on the top of the church tower. Uh, Bill Pope, just a phenomenal cinematographer. The music by Christopher Young, which we've already talked about in that scene. And the very subtle plotting of the realization that loud noises can harm the symbiote. Mm-hmm. And I just that scene that scene is just so wonderful. I I I love watching it. I I think it's such an effective emotional scene because of the fact that the way Christopher Young scores that scene, you you really see the tension between you know what Peter's trying to do. Peter's trying to get rid of this symbiote that's. Uh, harmed him throughout it's caused so much harm and you know it feels like a real struggle to where when he's finally rid of it and it goes to Eddie like he kind of it looks like Peter's exhausted as he goes into the shadows and it's it's just such a wonderfully shot scene and such a brilliant scene by Raimi to uh, make. Yeah, yeah, you get that shot of him uh, after he's torn the suit off, like 
I, I don't know if he's all the way naked under that suit or what the deal is, but he's like, you know, yeah. topless <laughs> and kind of like chest down, sort of like kind of recovering. And then he goes home and takes a shower, sort of cleansing. Like it's a very sort of baptismal sequence yeah. uh, in that way. And I think, and it, it, you know, it's all about kind of restoring his his purity, his his Peter Parkerness of what we know him to be. Yeah. Uh, and I'm so glad that you brought up the the very, very last scene because I love that scene as well. I love again that it bookends the movie with the, with uh, MJ singing. I love that it is no dialogue. I love that it's not a, a clean answer. It it ends obviously they would plan to do a fourth one with Vulture. I think John Malkovich was was considered for that or whatever, uh, and that never happened. Yeah. Uh, instead, we got the Amazing Spider Man and then Spider Man Homecoming and all of the six million versions that made No Way Home possible, which we'll get to in a second. But I love. I really love this as, as an end of their story because it ends not on a period, not on an exclamation point. It ends on an ellipsis. It's like, well, what do they do now? Yeah. They, they live their lives They're It's messy. It's complicated. They'll screw up. They'll apologize. They'll patch things up. That's what it's like to be an adult in an adult relationship. Uh, you know, and I, and I love that that's where it leaves the two of them. It's not, they don't go off and get married and he doesn't, you know, pull the ring out or nothing, nothing like that. It's implied that there's hope for these two. There's hope for these two yet. They have to grow together, not apart. And, and I think that's a really lovely, uh, sentiment for these movies that, that, as you said, they are, these movies are so earnest in so many ways, as much as they're, they're fun popcorn films. They're really about growing up. Uh, and you know, that from adolescence onward, growing up into an adult. And so uh, the fact that it ends with them trying to, to enter that next phase of their life together, hand in hand, I think is really beautiful. No, I, I, I agree. And like, it's, it's, you know, and, and it basically, one of the things I also love about that is because it doesn't, you know, it doesn't have a title card that says like six months later or something like that, but you do get the impression that time has passed since Harry's funeral. Mm-hmm. And you get the impression that Peter is ready to try again with MJ and hopefully do things better than he did last time before. And I, that's, that's another reason why that, you know, I, in a way, I mean, as, as much as I would have liked to have seen Sam Raimi do a fourth, uh, Spider-Man movie, I'm kind of glad that one kind of fell apart because of the fact that this works just so beautifully as a trilogy. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree. I agree. I, I love, uh, I love where it leaves these characters. And that, that sort of leads me into No Way Home, which obviously we pick up with Tobey Maguire, like 15 years, presumably in, in, you know, for his character as it has been in real time. Uh, so we get like, you know, mid forties, uh, Peter Parker at this point or thereabouts. So how, obviously, you know, Venom is not, is only, you know, this Venom doesn't pop up in that movie, which I think was a smart move considering fans are very mixed to negative yeah. on Topher Grace as Venom. We got a little bit of Tom Hardy there for two seconds uh, in No Way Home. Sandman plays a obviously an integral part in the film. How do you feel that No Way Home builds on uh, on where, you know, where this movie leaves, I guess, Peter and Sandman, so they, since they're the only ones that reappear? Um, 
I think that... Well, and we also have to consider Green Goblin comes back, too. And yeah. Doc Ock. And I, but if we're talking about just Sandman and Peter Parker, I, I think this... I think this serves both of those characters very well. Uh, I think No Way Home did that. And I think uh, it's it makes for a lovely little coda for McGuire's character and, and gives you a sense of closure for the character. And I think it's it serves the same way as for Andrew Garfield. I have very mixed feelings about the Andrew Garfield films, none of which have anything to do with Andrew Garfield, but with the way those stories are structured and the way that they play with that iconography. Um, I, I think that they did. It's one of the better examples of doing something that is fan servicey in a way that makes in the way that makes very good use of the elements in a way that is not fan servicey. I I think this this McGuire the way mm-hmm. he performs his Peter Parker in No Way Home is as authentic as anything he did in the Raimi films. And I love that um, the way that those respected Parkers help to uh, bring more weight to Holland's Parker and his arc and what he's going through at the moment. He's essentially, they're essentially taking over for Aunt May in that moment, yeah. in those moments. And I, I think that's, it's, it's just a lovely, lovely thing. Um, you know, I mean, Thomas Hayden church, I, I don't think if I remember correctly, I've only seen no way home once, but I don't recall Sandman being, I mean, obviously so much of it was green goblin and, uh, doc Ock related. I don't really remember too much as far as like them doing a whole lot with Sandman in there. But I mean, I, you know, it was, it was fine. It was, you know, I, I think he was, if you're going to bring back a, uh, villain, another villain from this movie that made the most sense because obviously it was the only one that was alive at the time. And, uh, no, I mean, I, I think, I think you get a nice, uh, circle back to uh i i think it's a nice little coda to what Raimi did his trilogy yeah the, the the struggle they have with sandman is that i don't really think they had much or any new footage of thomas hayden church so it's all ex- uh you know a cg character created using scans of him and then voice work uh so you have that that obstacle that, that doesn't maybe feel as resonant because they didn't really have as much of, they didn't really have Thomas Hayden church on the set uh, on the day. And also they, they're, they're sort of <laughs> the movie tries to constantly justify his shifting allegiances where when it starts, he's like, Peter, it's me. Remember Flint Marco, the sand guy. Um, and then, and then he shifts against Spider-Man because he just wants to get home. 
And so it, I think the movie kind of, you know, has its cake and, and eats it too with Sandman a little bit, trying to have him be still sort of redeemed, but also still kind of working with the bad guys because he just really wants, it's a means to an end to it, uh, to an end for him. So that that's kind of that they do with him there. That's interesting. Uh, I also really like that, that no way home leverages how dark this movie gets and that when they're talking in that, in that film about all the things that they've been through and, Oh, you know, well, I had Gwen Stacy and I lost her and I had my aunt May and my uncle Ben and I lost them, whatever. And, uh, he, when he goes up and stops Tom Holland's, uh, Peter from killing green goblin, we've seen him go dark places so we know yeah. the journey that he's yeah. been on. Uh, Tom Holland, uh, Tom Holland's Peter is is facing it in real time as that movie progresses. Andrew Garfield, you know, said, "Oh, I stopped pulling my punches. I went really dark." So presumably, sometime after Amazing Spider-Man Two, he kind of had his own dark path. And but but Tobey Maguire is, yeah. is the only one of those that we've really seen and we have a history with. So I think it's interesting that that movie is gives us a glimpse of the Peter that's. 15 years removed from the end of this film where he screwed up and he's trying to kind of get his life back together and patch things up with MJ. And we get vague allusions to him and MJ, you know, they're still, they're still trying to make it work. Like where do you imagine that those two are at that point? Are they married? Are they still on again, off again? What do you, what do you think is the relationship status there? You know, I mean, I, I think they probably are, I, I think ultimately they're they they are doing as well they as they can to make it work. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, whether it's necessarily happily ever after, I don't know if that would necessarily be the case if based on, you know, what we understand, but I mean I think they would both I think they would both understand the challenge will have understood the challenges ahead to make that work and learned from the past mistakes that, you know, Peter made in this movie and MJ, you know, struggled with in her arc in these movies, you know, and I, I don't know that it's necessarily happily ever after, but certainly I, I think to a certain extent I can see them uh, at least, you know, trying to, trying to be happy together and you know even if there are still struggles uh you know doing it as well as they can yeah yeah uh i i one last no way home related question would you even what what would you want to see now that we saw this the raimi trilogy we caught up with you know middle-aged toby Maguire, uh middle-aged peter parker from that universe would you would you want to see him back, whether he shows up in Doctor Strange or in the MCU somewhere else, whether the Marvel Studios been like, hey, Sam Raimi, you're back with us. Do you want to do Spider-Man for now? Like, would you want any more of Tobey Maguire Spider-Man in this universe or should they just leave it alone? I, I think they put a very good finale, finality, sense of finality to uh, Tobey Maguire's Peter Parker. Um you know, I wouldn't trust anybody other than Raimi at this point to bring the character back. You know, and that's not to say that they didn't do a good job. I do think they did a good job in No Way Home. But I think if you're going to do something to continue on with that Peter Parker, it has to be Sam Raimi. 
Um, I I don't need to see more of Peter Park that P- Toby Maguire's Peter Parker. Um, I I'm I I think the way that they ended things with him in No Way Home is the way that it should be ended. Uh, I I think you run the risk of at this point I think you would run the risk of doing needless fan service that wouldn't necessarily be justified or earned for when it comes to that that version of the character. I I think from now on the the prime one does have the prime focus does have to be on Tom Holland's Spider Man. Right. And if they want to keep another Spider-Man going, Andrew Garfield seems pretty open and willing to doing that. And the fact that I, I you know, I agree with you over time, I have come to appreciate this film more and more. And, and by contrast, <laughs> uh, appreciate the amazing Spider-Man less and less. Uh, I, I never liked yeah. the amazing Spider-Man too. I, I always thought it was a terrible movie, even when I saw it the first time. Uh, but the first one I was like, okay, it's fine, whatever. But as time's gone on, I've come to see that this movie is actually trying new things and telling an interesting story and has deep themes and interesting characters and amazing Spider-Man is basically coasting on the charisma of Andrew Garfield and Emma Stone. And that's about it. That's pretty much all it brings that is worthwhile. And, and I think part of the problem with the amazing movies is that they also tweak his origin story to where it is basically this conspiracy yeah. within Oscorp where everything's coming from Oscorp and it's like, why why are we doing that? That is such a bad way of approaching things. It's like that that makes it too insular. And one of the things that was great about the Raimi trilogy is that each story ultimately gestated from its own place. You know, the one exception being Harry. But at the same time, he has his own arc where it's it's not just, oh, Spider-Man killed my father. I'm all of a sudden going to be Hobgoblin. He takes time to get to that point. And, uh, you know, I, I that was my biggest problem with the amazing movies. And I mean, I, you know, I, I think, you know, I understand people feeling like Andrew Garfield kind of got shafted in those movies. He kind of did. But at the same time, it's like, I, I, I think unless it's sort of the same thing with Tobey Maguire, you're going to have to have a really good justifiable reason to continue with that version of Peter Parker moving forward, especially considering where Holland's Peter Parker left off in no way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I mean, Ultimately, the fact that I left No Way Home being like, oh, okay, Tobey Maguire, that's good. We're ready to now officially say goodbye. But Andrew Garfield, hey, maybe this guy, because for me, he stole that movie, uh, which I was not expecting because I, I, again, don't care for those films, uh, his films per se. But yeah, I, I think there's life there, but I don't think it, and I don't think it needs to be connected to Tom Holland. That's the other thing. Like Tom Holland's Spider-Man needs to finally stand on his own without Tony Stark or Nick Fury or Dr. Strange or other Spider-Men like let him do his own thing. Finally, please. 
Um, but I, you know, that doesn't mean Andrew Garfield can't do his own thing. Yeah. And that's why I like the way that they wrap things up with no way home, because it does for once and for all sever his Peter Parker from Tony Stark from the Avengers. And Mm -hmm. it truly does isolate him in the way that, okay, now he can do his own thing without all the baggage of being part of the being a true cohesive part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. He really can be his own character for once. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Excited to see what they do next with this. Um, Is there, before we start, before we, kind of do the ranking and, and wind down this extraordinarily long episode you called it um is there anything <laughs> is there anything about spider-man 3 we haven't said uh that, that you wanted to to make sure we we pointed out i don't really i think we covered everything that i really wanted to cover in it um i mean again i i look at this movie and it's like i i look at you know, I look at it as a reflection more as much of my own emotional journey as I do Peter Parker's. And, you know, it's actually kind of funny that um, Raimi is coming to the MCU making the Doctor Strange sequel because, I mean, if I'm being honest, the first Doctor Strange is probably my favorite real MCU movie. And it's, it, it comes back to a lot of the same things I was talking about, what connected with me in terms of this one, because in Doctor Strange, um, Stephen Strange basically has a moment where he, you know, I mean, or his origin is he gets into this terrible accident. He's not able to do what made him great anymore. So he basically has to build himself back up from the ground up and, understand that it's his as well as mature as an individual and you know he he has to kind of find his own spiritual path back to that and it's that very much uh connects with me in terms of what i went through physically you know whereas this one focuses this one really connects with me as much on the mental and emotional journey i did so the fact that Sam Raimi, you know, I was disappointed that Scott Derrickson uh, left Multiverse of Madness, but when Sam Raimi came on board, it's like, oh, I'm excited mm-hmm. now because it's like, first of all, it's Sam Raimi making his first comic book movie since Spider-Man 3, but also the fact that he's going to be part of arguably my two favorite uh superhero franchises is 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 something that's kind of special so yeah no absolutely no i i it's like i said earlier he's there he's got that 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 secret sauce he's got the a perfect take when it comes to comic book material because he can he can have a scene where Peter Parker is swinging all over a jazz club on for chandeliers or whatever he was doing and then 2 seconds later hits MJ like the love of his life and knocks her to the ground in this like really powerful, intense moment in the same scene, in the same movie. In this, and he can balance all those tones and make something fun and then terrifying. I mean, it's, it's a skill he, he honed on the Evil Dead movies. So 
Uh, it's yeah, I'm very excited to see what he what he does with that, and and if it means any more of him in the MCU or with any Marvel properties. Period. I, I think uh, that uh, you know they'd be lucky to have him. Uh, so obviously we we uh, are both uh, are on board for this film. What would you say is the legacy of this franchise, and what is your ranking of the Raimi trilogy? I mean, I think the legacy of this franchise is ultimately, I I think it's it it's ultimately proof more than even the X Men movies that a series of films around a comic book character could truly work, and uh, you could do something with them in an emotional way that connects with people as much as you would just simply on an entertainment level. Um, it's not to say these are necessarily, I think the second one is a legitimately great film, mm-hmm. but I mean, certainly I think the first and the third one, uh, have, have their issues, but ultimately I, I, I think all three pointed a way to these movies that ultimately did lead to, movies that we saw later on in Iron Man in Captain America First Avenger or Black Panther or Shang-Chi or Captain Marvel in the way that they approach the emotional aspects and the thematic aspects of these stories as much as they do the entertainment value. Um, as far as ranking these, so this is going to be a little bit of a controversial one. I, I think the first one, the first one I think has a really great origin story, but I think some things like some of the CGI, like, I, I think Willem Dafoe's performance goes a bit too overboard in the, uh, as being like a really over the top villain. Um, for me, I, I think it's, 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 it's Sam Raimi sort of still learning, feeling out his chops on this level of filmmaking. That would be my third. Second one would be this one, though. Again, it's it's not perfect, but I think thematically this is as strong as a movie as Raimi made in this trilogy. And then the first one is far and away, and then the second one is far and away the best. I I think is is genuinely a great comic book movie it's a great superhero movie it's it's just a great movie i think in general because of the fact that it captures the emotional aspects of peter parker's journey as well as just thrilling action that is really kind of unimpeachable even now um yeah i i agree completely with all of that uh and it's it is, you know, it, 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 these movies really sort of cracked the Marvel template. I think a lot of people give John Favreau yeah. credit for that. And I, and I think, you know, I think Sam Raimi did it first. Uh, and you could point to X-Men or you could point to Blade as like, oh, you know, superhero movies can work on screen if you take them seriously, blah, blah, blah. But this is the one that feels like a direct correlation to the MCU. It's like you said, it, it, the character journeys and all that stuff, all like the tone of like being serious, but not too serious. Uh, I think, 
I, I think it, 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 it leads directly to that. And like, to your point about the first one, there had never been a definitive Spider-Man origin story put to film really before, uh, Batman had done been done before to, to lesser extent. I think Batman begins really crystallizes that a few years later. Uh, and then Superman obviously had the Richard Donner. And then now we have, you know, every, every superhero has their origin movie, but I think it, it really, that's, if, if there's anything holding Raimi back, it's the fact that he knows he has to do the origin story first. And then once he gets to the second one, then he gets to really play. Uh, then you get the, the very evil dead inspired, uh, Doc Ock sequence. Then you get like a lot, yeah. <laughs> like you get a lot more playful of a tone, a lot, you know, digging deeper into the character relationships and all that stuff. And I, I think the sequels are, feel like the feel way more Sam Raimi esque than, than the first one does. So I, I a hundred percent agree with you on there. Uh, I that's all I have on the Spider-Man, uh, this Sam Raimi trilogy, as you know, as we said, these three movies are, are all a blast, really probably easily one of the most influential and uh, entertaining superhero trilogies of all time. As, as we said, I, you know, I think it's, there's a few, obviously you could put the dark Knight in there and, and a couple other ones, but I feel like this is, is clearly as far as its impact and influence on the genre, sort of, uh, sort of, almost almost unmatched maybe like i said the dark knight would be the only other one but thank you so much brian for coming on to talk about spider-man 3 for three hours with me um (laughs) can you tell people where they can find you on social media uh you can find uh you can find me on instagram at bm scuttle s-k-u-t-l-e uh you can find me on twitter at S-K-U-T-L-E-L-E-M-U-R, Scuttle Lemur. Um, I do have a Sonic Cinema Facebook group where I post all my reviews. I do also post all my reviews on Letterboxd. Just look up my name, Brian Scuttle, S-K-U-T-L-E. Um, and also, you know, you can listen to the podcast at YouTube, at Sonic Cinema Podcast, and I also have a composers page there where you can listen to some of my music uh if you're interested primarily in movies though uh this hong cinema podcast is where you can do that as well as www.sonic-cinema.com awesome this has been so much fun brian thank you for for taking the time i know we were sort of discussing have doing this episode for a while so i'm glad that we were finally able to make it happen and uh, this is this should be if you're listening to this in the the french's detours feed then uh dr strange in the multiverse of madness is out now in theaters because this will be posting when uh, the day that that film is released so uh if you're if you're in a sam raimi marvel kick listen to this episode then go check out dr strange uh but brian it's been a pleasure as always we'll definitely have you back uh thanks so much my friend Big thanks to Brian Scuttle from the Sonic Cinema Podcast for coming on to discuss 2007 Spider-Man 3. As you know, this is the end of our Spider-Man Sam Raimi trilogy mega series, and so it's time to go through the rankings of these three films by our guests and figure out which one is the best of this franchise. So, the lady one, to recap, came on to talk to me about Spider-Man from 2002. And she put Spider-Man 2 in the first place, followed by Spider-Man 1, followed by Spider-Man 3. 
Josh Bell came on and we talked about Spider-Man 2, by far one of the most uh, most popular superhero movies, probably one of the more influential ones of the last couple decades. And Josh Bell had Spider-Man 2 also in first place. And Spider-Man 1 is in second place, Spider-Man 3 in third place, just like the lady one. Then Brian Scottle, who you just heard talk about Spider-Man 3 for three hours, uh, ranked also Spider-Man 2 first place, and then Spider-Man 3 second, and then the original Spider-Man first place, which means for the first time, we have a unanimous choice for the top film of a franchise mega series. So, obviously in first place was Spider-Man 2, followed by Spider-Man from 2002, and then closely behind that, Spider-Man 3 from 2007. So, I think that that's that's pretty much the consensus, I would say, two, one, and three. I love that three and one were off by one point, so this thing was, was pretty tight. I think there's a lot more support for Spider-Man 3 out there than there was in certainly in 2007 when I saw it and I was like I don't know how I feel about this after you know, you heard me you heard me uh, unpack my thoughts in detail so you, no need to rehash that but needless to say all three of these movies are worth watching they work together so well as a trilogy as an arc for the uh, Peter and MJ characters and the Harry character as well uh, and if you're listening to this when this is getting posted right away There's a new Sam Raimi Marvel movie out right now, Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness, which I have seen and which is also a very interesting conversation starter, visual, stylistic piece from Sam Raimi, as if we would expect any less. So uh, hopefully you enjoyed this episode. We will probably cover more superheroes later this year, not Spider-Man. We'll give Spider-Man a rest for now. But uh, as for the upcoming schedule for franchise detours i have a few standalones in the can that i'm going to kind of bust through starting with probably the next episode will be sister act which is a standalone episode on sister act from 1992 and sister act 2 back in the habit from 1993 and that will coincide neatly with the 30th anniversary of the original sister act so stick around for that in a couple of weeks Uh, For now, what did you think of this episode? What's your favorite Spider-Man movie? Let me know. You can find me on Twitter at Crooked Table, the same handle on Instagram, and via email at robert at crookedtable.com. For now, that's a wrap on another Crooked Table production. See you on down the road, everyone. This has been a production of CrookedTable.com. All rights reserved. Z-R-O-O-K-E-D. 